Hello, 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 folks. Bonsoir. It's time for take 14 of Film 5s, isn't it, Phil? It is, it is. Apologies for it being ages since we did this last, but our current one, I hadn't seen many of his films or didn't remember them, and so I've had to watch a lot for this in preparation. So taking a bit longer than normal. Yes, and we've been both been a bit busy, so apologies indeed for not being on sooner, but we are back. Our last time out, it was Francis McDormand. The he that you're referring to for this week's, or this month's episode, is the famous classic Hollywood film director, Billy Wilder, um, a director who I love. I've, there's a number of his films I absolutely adore and think are quite simply brilliant, for want of a better word. He's um, amazing, yeah. We will get into, of course, um, all of the ones I'm talking about there, including um, those that are on the top fives, uh, which we'll come to shortly. Um, I actually loved his films. When I fell in love with classic Hollywood stuff, which I've seen him through the years on TV as a kid growing up here and there, you know, classic Hollywood films in general, but I didn't really um, get into it in a full-on kind of filmic, that, that fil- filmo- filmophobe kind of way. Um, no, that's not the right word, filmophile. <laughs> cinephile yeah. even, let's go with cinephile. That's the one. Uh, I didn't go into, into it in that way until... Um, later on, when I kind of re got into film properly at the age of, I don't know, probably about 18 or 19, and really started to go into a back catalogue of classic. See, Hollywood. I didn't really do Holly- classic Hollywood until we did screwball comedies about six months ago. Yeah. And then, and then after that, I thought, I, 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 I quite fancy getting into Billy Wilder. So yeah, it's actually, this was actually my suggestion. Yes, it was yeah. indeed. Yeah. And what a yeah, I, I wanted to treat myself and educate yeah. myself. I mean, the screwball comedies, things like um, the Billy Wilder films, the Howard Hawks films, the William Wyler films, all of those kind of things are just of a certain era. We're talking maybe 30s for some of the stuff we just mentioned, but for, for him, it's 40s, 50s stuff. And, um, you know, they're, they're just some of the best films of the earlier eras. Um, oh, definitely. Simply out there. And, and Billy Wilder has made... You know, in, in films like Sunset Boulevard, some like it hot, Double Indemnity, The Apartments, um, and various other films. I mean, we'll go on, we'll go on with the list later, but um, so many films that are at the very least famous. A classic, um, yeah. That will probably feature in our top five somewhere. Yes. I'm, I am expecting us to have the same top four. <laughs> yes. Um and then know. perhaps differing top fifth uh, fifth place number. We we, we shall see. Indeed. For me, for me, this was yeah. I had I had the I had a top four quite quickly, and then but I'm still playing around with what order they go in even today. <laughs> I, I have to warn you, mine. Even at this exact moment, I'm still wondering if I need to change my order again. The um, last classic Hollywood director we did was our first episode, Alfred Hot Alfred Hotchkick, Alfred Hitchcock, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock, and we both had the same top four for that, albeit in different orders. So I'm expecting the same again this time. Same sort of thing again, and um. It's Sounds like you've been on the beers already, Phil. And if you have, why not? I am. I'm on the uh, the Camden Brewery. I'm on the Pale Ale. Yeah, I've got a case of theirs, so I'll be having another one of theirs shortly. And it's very nice indeed. This is the uh, Camden Town Brewery. Thoroughly recommended. Absolutely, they're, they're great beers. And in tribute to the fact we're doing classic Hollywood, I've got quite a classic-looking old-school picture on the tin I'm drinking here. Visa Weizen, uh, oh. which is a, I think a wheat beer, basically. In, in yeah. From Holland. Um, I haven't actually tasted any of it yet. I'll just do that right now, just to give you a verdict. Oh. That's all right. Quite nice. Kind of Belgian beerish a little bit. Yeah, it's like that. Fantastic. As you'd imagine from a wheat beer. But uh, yeah, it's um, 
That's good stuff. Very nice. Lovely. That'll set me on the uh, on the way nicely. Um, now, last time out, Phil, it was you to go first. It's going to be me to go first, but let's get a bit of background about Billy Wilder first, shall we? Yeah. What so where I've been doing my reading up recently. So born Samuel Wilder in 1906 to a family of Polish Jews in a small town that was then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, now part of Poland. Um, he was nicknamed Billy by his mother. When he arrived in the States, he actually officially changed it. Um, his parents ran a successful cake shop before um, they, the family moved to Vienna, where Wilder kind of became a journalist. In 1926, he interviewed jazz band leader Paul Whiteman, who took him on the road with the band, where they uh, went to Berlin. And whilst in Berlin, he developed an interest in film, began working as a screenwriter. From 1929 to 1933, he produced about a dozen German films. I haven't seen any of those, I've got to be honest. Um, <laughs> obviously, the politics in Germany around that time were getting a bit dodgy, particularly for Jewish people. In fact, his um, grandmother and stepfather actually ended up being victims of the Holocaust. So after Hitler rose to power, he moved to Paris, where he made his directorial debut film, Mauvais Grand. Uh, in 1934, and he relocated to Hollywood before it was released. Upon arriving in Hollywood, he uh, continued work as a screenwriter, and his first significant success was uh, Ninochka in 1939, for which he uh, was Oscar-nominated. And he followed up those scripts with a series of box office hits, often co-written with Charles Brackett, um, many of which we, dis or some of which we discussed on our, uh, our Scruple comedy ones, which is Ball of Fire. And he had another one, hit with Hold Back the Dawn. In 1942, his Hollywood director directorial debut came along with The Major and the Minor. And we will be taking it from there. Um, yeah. Just Ooh, so a few. Sort of, sorry. Way, Ball of Fire is on um, Amazon Prime at the moment. I've oh, noticed fantastic. it's one of the only ones that is free. A lot of Billy Wilder's stuff you have to pay for on yeah. there. Annoying. Lucky I've got them all on DVD. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, sorry, carry on. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, just a few notes on, on him. So, um, his, uh, he, he was very, he obviously started as a screenwriter and he was very much the writer's writer and his directorial choices reflected his belief in the primacy of writing. His films have very, very tight plotting, very memorable dialogue and he often, um, bent the scripts to the personality of the actors that he was working with. He was very good working with them. Um, he directed how many, how many di um, different actors do you think he directed to Oscar nominations? Oh, that's a good question. Actors to to nominations, right? Okay. How, how many Oscar no, no, nominate, nominated still, actors did he possibly get? Possibly including supporting ones. I'm going to go. Yeah, for, yeah. I'm going to go for twelve or something. Not like. bad. Fourteen. <laughs> that is pretty impressive, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on retiring from film in the in the kind of early eighties, he amassed a huge art collection um, created a series of works of his own and died of pneumonia in 2002 leaving quite a legacy um, I mean he's got uh, his legacy in terms of the comedy he's the top director on most lists of the funniest films or top comedy comedy directors he's also in the top 10 of most director lists um he's had 12 academy award nominations for screenwriting that was a record until uh, woody allen overtook him um he's also something else i'm sure we're going to get into he battled hollywood censorship repeatedly through his career uh expanding the range of kind of what was acceptable subject matter i'm sure that's something we'll be getting into quite a lot as, as we work our way through absolutely i mean you can't underestimate how much of a 
the writing is part of what he or a large part of what is he is about and what makes him so good um he's synonymous with snappy really punchy funny just a very pertinent dialogue that just yeah just allows the the plot and the narrative to zip along. It's it's very much the classic Hollywood way. This kind of not wasting time. We talked about it before. It's really tightly. Yeah. Um, Although most, I mean, most of his films are a good couple of hours. He doesn't do that. He hasn't got that many short films. But they true, don't they don't it? feel it, especially by the standards of the time. Yeah, I think even sort of double indemnity, like this, it's one of the early famous. Um, examples of film noir and that's I think it's an hour 48 yeah and yeah. but film noirs tended a lot from at least from my imagination to be pretty much like 90 minutes 95 yeah, yeah. So I know that's not much of a difference but even then yeah. that's long by averages um but his his writing was so important and and so tightly written to, to the to the stories that he made if, if he made them himself or even if other people made them that they really didn't have much scope or much cause uh to, to, to really change anything so there wasn't an awful lot of improvisation oh no was, no no not at all yeah it's a documentary tony curtis talking about something like it hot where he said i think he tried to improvise one or two lines and in the end they thought wow that's actually not as good as the original script you oh, know, no. I, think, I think i think in the apartment um jack lemon he got to improvise some of the lines to himself when he's talking to himself in the apartment with the spaghetti and the tennis racket and that kind of thing but apart from that he was like you need you stick to my script there's no going off piece very much i think the cohen's are like that as well it's, it's on the page you do it like that nothing else yeah and it's fair enough as long as you, you know you can put your money where your mouth is and in both those cases he has a, they, they have a vision and that's what they want to see executed yeah, that's right. And Cohen Brothers and Billy Wilder, very different writers from different eras, but the same, the same principle. They both, they both, they both do black comedy very, very well. Indeed, yeah. That's the thing. There's lots of searing, knowing comments um, that really. There's so many lines in his films where you know it's a Billy Wilder film once you've got used to Billy yeah. Wilder. Um, where you know it's him because it's just. The turns of phrase, you know, the whole thing with him coming from um, from Germany, from Jewish backgrounds, escaping the Holocaust, and just his sensibilities and what he brings to Hollywood from Eastern Europe, or in this case, Central Europe, I should say. Um, it's kind of, um, it, it just really, it, it just, there's a certain difference to, to just born and bred yeah. Hollywood writers, for example. And his his dialogue is just really just... Um, and yeah, the um, uh, one of his most famous lines is the very, very last line in uh, Some Like It Hot of Nobody's Perfect oh. that he just put in as a throwaway line. Thought, I'll put that in there for now and I'll think of something better. And it's, I think the Hollywood Reporter wrote, voted it up the 78th best line of dialogue ever in the history, top 100 history of Hollywood film or whatever it is. And I was, I'll, I'll see if I think of something, see if I think of something better. Didn't get around to it. Oh, that'll do, you know. I, I, I thought it would have been higher, to be honest. It's so yeah. the line, isn't it? I suppose if we start getting down to it, there are a lot of very, very famous lines. But anyway, yeah. maybe we could do that, actually. That could be a new subject. Yeah. Our top five lines of all time. Well, I might take a bit of uh, research. Um, yeah, maybe we'll do that later. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he, he's got also the other thing to mention about it. Obviously, we talked about the writing side and the dialogue is is key within his films. The narratives are brilliantly plotted as well. Um, 
he, do, he doesn't worry so much about the sort of visual flourishes, flourishes, flourishes. God, I'm running out. I'm running my first bit. The visual <laughs> flourishes. He's not like Hitchcock or someone like that. He yeah. he thinks that that kind of distracts you from the actual sort of story. You know, yeah. so. it's more story based. Although that's not to say his films are not beautifully shot. No, um, I just watched as a refresh. I watched Double Indemnity today and. Uh, um, with a commentary and um, but so it's a bit different when you watch commentaries on blu-ray or whatever it's interesting because you kind of look at it in a different way you're looking just at the visuals yeah. um, I, I had the subtitles running just in case i needed to remind myself of a line while i was listening to what they were saying but um just just it, it isolates you a little bit and you get to see just how pristinely beautifully sharply shot his films are as well yeah um he's he's one of those consummate professionals as you said he's not a hitchcock flamboyant type of director in that sense but that's not to say he isn't very competent he'll, he'll know when to chuck in a close-up of barbara stanwyck yeah. for example in that film yeah. uh, and when to have a long shot he'll have some interesting shots in there like there's one handheld kind of pullback kind of scene where they're on the couch in his apartment in that film for example and yeah. it's just um he's a very very competent very spot-on director but yes it's more about the stories the narrative the um the the plot and the and particularly the dialogue yeah yeah so and it was let's do this yeah, let's do it because my my top five i mean we said earlier in the at the top of the program our top fours are very likely to be the same because he's got a, a number of ult- ultimate hollywood classic films i'd say he's got about a dozen very, very, very good films of which yeah. four are world class. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> exactly. So we've got that to, to keep in mind. I had a, a problem putting them into order. I think I've settled on an order now. Um, I also had a problem with the fifth one because the fifth one we're talking about, as you said, excellent films that aren't in the world class category, but they're not too far behind. And I could have had one of about probably about six choices. Oh, it's very one. much the same. Yeah. And I suspect we'll probably have picked something different. We'll find out in a moment um, as we start with our countdown. So if you're all ready, let's go for it, shall we, Phil? Let's do this. So what I've gone for in the end is a film I actually haven't seen of his. Um, I've, I've seen most of his well-known or better-known or better films, um, but one I've not seen until recently, and I, the aforementioned Amazon Prime was quite convenient. I know what you're going to come up with. <laughs> it's Ace in the Hole. From yeah, 19th great film. Long. Yeah, brilliant film. Um, Kirk Douglas in the main role. Uh, a number of people not particularly well-known aside from him. Yeah. And, but again, it's about the story. It's about the dialogue. It's about the concept. It's um, it's also known, according to Wikipedia, it's also known as the Big Carnival, which I didn't know until I, I looked that. up. That doesn't really make sense, but yeah, yeah okay. Have to, uh, sometimes you get that between across the, tran- across the Atlantic. But, um, yeah. But both these films seem to be the American. It's film. certainly a film that feels very relevant even now, and it's what early. What, what I'm trying to think. What year is Ace now? 1951. 1951. Yeah, mm. yeah. You're right. Yeah, it really is pertinent. We'll get into why as we, as we discuss it. It's been described as an American film noir. I'm not so sure that's really accurate. Actually, not for me. Um, yeah, I thought anyway, you had to have detectives and things in it to be a film yeah, noir. You don't light and shade and all that. Yeah. Thing. But I mean, as we said, it's Kirk Douglas in the, the as the protagonist, and the reason it's pertinent to the modern day is because he is. A pretty unlikable character. He's a slimy journalist, isn't he? A slimy, cynical, opportunistic direct um, uh, journalist who essentially a is city a journalist, city no journalist, less. in New yeah. York, 
for the Big Apple, who at the beginning of the story is just rolled in with a slightly nonchalant, arrogant air into the uh, into the, a local town in Albuquerque, um, where he he pretty much just struts in, owns the place. He's run tells, out of money, isn't he? He's yeah. Basically, yeah. And tells the proprietor slash editor that um that his his paper's absolute pants and that he's here to sort it all out. He then proceeds to explain with some sort of degree of thick thick, thick skinness um why he's been kicked out of various um establishments in the past, having affairs, drinking, yeah. uh, disreputable things, whatever it might be. And but he's here to then save the paper and um and so the story goes. It very quickly jumps to a year later, still in situ, nothing happening, small town, nothing to do, can't make his mark, essentially. Yeah. So here's this arrogant guy who can't get back uh, to where he wanted to be. Um, for some reason, he's sticking with the same paper in the same town. But you know, he's uh, yeah, looking for the big story that could be his, his escape. Yeah, that's it. He, he and, wants to get back to the big leagues, doesn't he? Yeah. And what's what's um, disreputable about him as proven within the storyline of this film rather than the backstory of it is that um, eventually a situation comes up where he goes to to look at some sort of rattlesnake hunt thing some gimmicky localized story with um, this young buck um, journalist within the organization and they quickly spot a police car going past up to the caves of an ancient um, Native American reservation slash ancient Native American cave area where apparently a local a local hick type of guy has strutted around. He's looking for artifacts to steal. Yeah, he's, he's basically grave robbing, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, essentially, which he's hoping to sell to small town America type of stuff. Something's collapsed and he's stuck uh, from the from the waist down, buried inside this this cave area, which people can get to and communicate with him, but they can't get him out. And essentially, the the concept is right. What do we do? So Kirk Douglas pretty arrogantly struts his way in. He actually physically minorly assaults the policeman by chucking something at him and basically telling him how it's going to be, this this policeman being the deputy, not the sheriff. And he just bosses the situation, goes in with his photographer, establishes a link with the guy who's down there, a guy called Leo, and he essentially decides to... um, well, he realises that it's probably possible to get him out quite easily. but In a day or two, yeah. But if he does so, he can't drum up a lot of interest in the story. So being a cynical big-town journalist, he decides to not mention that to anyone. And, and try and get to dr- dig in from the top, yeah, yeah which will take top. a week or a week and a yeah. half or whatever, during which time he can yeah get the get the story out all the way yeah. let the story go viral we would say exactly now. exactly and and that's where the modern relevance comes in it's it's cynicism at its worst it's the modern era of journalism is kind of very similar to what elements of what he's doing there's people showing up rubbernecking they're making a whole festival of it someone writes a song about this guy people are coming on holidays there oh, to visit holidays to see it. yeah yeah there's there's a fun fair there's a big top at one point as well comes into the equation and um the the, the way that kirk douglas's character um is uh, a guy called what's his name it's um tatum isn't it um yeah. charles tatum or chuck as he starts getting called by all the locals um the, the way he's able to manipulate that is he taps into the local sheriff. The the, the, oh, the mayor. He wants to be voted. Is he the mayor or the sheriff? Yeah, he's he's existing. I think sheriff. he wants to get voted yeah. back into the. Sheriff. He wants to get voted back in, and he wants yeah. a kind of good news story for that. Yeah, exactly. And so Kirk Douglas persuades him that his interests are shared. Um, uh, these aren't all massive spoilers if you haven't seen the film. Most of this happens within the first twenty minutes or so. Hmm. Yeah. So we just we're just setting the story. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this is um, interesting in that, um, well, first of all, a bit of background. Uh, the co-stars I'm just looking up are Jan Sterling, and it features Robert Arthur and Porter Hall. Jan Sterling presumably plays Leo's wife, who is yeah. this rather kind of also very unfavourable character who's essentially not fussed about him being stuck down there no. she wants to get out of town really yeah she's about to go until this this whole circus element with loads of money making uh rocks up on the scene off the back of what Kirk yeah, she's another quite reprehensible individual isn't she it's a lot of unlikable characters yeah there's, there's the, the the police sheriff there's various other characters who are just in it for themselves, various other reporters. Everybody's trying to exploit the situation for their own means, yeah. Yeah. Um, it marked a series of firsts for Billy Wilder, this film, um, who very much is an auteur, and it was the first time that he was involved in a project um, in the collective sense as both um, director, uh, well, sorry, as, as a director, as a producer, and also as a writer, that was the first time. His first film following his breakup with long-term writing partner Charles Brackett, with whom he had collaborated on The Lost Weekend, yeah. another excellent film, and Sunset Boulevard, a classic which we've already mentioned. Um, and his first film to be a critical and a commercial failure, which was interesting. A number oh, I of didn't know that. Yeah, a number of classic films have this trait from up and down the the you know the timeline of history with, with film, you know, whether it's Shawshank Redemption or Citizen Kane or whatever yeah. else it might be. Um, but yeah, this was apparently a failure at first, um, critically and commercially. Um, the story is a biting examination of the CD relationship. It's with- another one where he's pushing the censors, isn't he? And he's pushing what you're allowed to show on film. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. There's some very because at that time you still weren't allowed to see criminals getting away with things. You know, there was there was yeah. the Hayes Code and all of that, which essentially is what Kirk Douglas is in this film by yeah. preventing this man from being released. Um, he's well, he's risking his life. We won't say how it goes from there, but he's risking his life. It's obviously it's a it's a form of fraud slash. Um, well, perverting the course of some sort of justice, I suppose you could say. But he's um he's very disreputable. He he slaps um the wife at one point when she's getting quite yeah. flirty with him, um, or quite viciously. And it looks like he really slapped her. I haven't yeah. been in the background, but that looked like a genuine slap. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's very derogatory and very. He talks down to everybody. He's incredibly condescending. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you've got but very watchable at the same time. Don't let that put you off. It's classic Kirk, isn't it? With that yeah. chin and swept hair. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting film in many ways. It, as you said, it pushes the, the boundaries a little bit. Um, what it also does, it, it shows how gullible the public can be, how manipulated people can be by the press, even just by him, but also, you know, the yeah. sense of that. And it's um, a film that's, I mean, Ace in the Hole is an interesting title as well. Is yeah. Leo the Ace in the Hole? Yeah, what, yes. What does that mean? It's interesting to note as well. Um, it's very dark. It's uh, not physically, just, um, you know, uh, in yeah. tonal, tonal sense. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that he's getting away with this, or seemingly so, there's a certain unravelling of sorts that goes on later on. We won't go into detail. It's a film a lot of people won't have seen. I'd recommend checking it out. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime at the moment for free. So, um, yeah, worth a look. But a very interesting film because it's a bit against type, isn't it, really? And and mm. as you said, Billy Wilder, when he's having that creative freedom that he's not had to that degree before, yeah. um, it's interesting what he's come up with. Not as many laughs as quite a lot of his other films, but yeah, very watchable. Film. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of funny bits here because it's generally yeah. a serious film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it is a, a cautionary tale even for this day in terms of how publicity is handled, how the press are handled and how the press handles stories as well. Yeah. Um, the other men- thing to mention is the editor slash proprietor in the in this local newspaper who's, who's taken him in. Yeah. Um, he's, there's a big uh, mention at the beginning of the scenes with a, a slogan saying, tell the truth. Which has been embroidered by one of the staff, you know, yeah. you know, non- small town paper, yeah. Thing. But this whole notion of tell the truth, this upstanding, you know, we're journalists here to report stories, to report facts, nothing more, not to distort things or manipulate them at all, uh, let alone. And that embroidered thing is also in not just outside his office, but there's another one inside his office. Yeah. Big deal for him. Um, and he eventually he comes to confront him. Um, and at that point, Kirk Douglas has already quit. So yeah. you know, he's kind of got the upper hand on that. And this notion of truth versus fiction versus um, the story, the importance of the story over the over the truth yeah. is an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah. No, a great film. Thoroughly recommend it. Excellent. Good very, good. very close to being number five. It ah. was probably, probably my seventh or sixth or eighth yeah. or something along those lines yeah we'll go, we'll go into that towards the end i guess it wasn't in your five because you would have mentioned it by now because yeah. it, it would have been your number five if it was in it there would have been, yeah yeah okay phil well what have you got in that so for number five i've gone for the 1953 film a couple of years later stalag 17 mm. yes so this is uh, after uh, two americans are killed while escaping from a german pow camp during world war Two. The Barracks, uh, black marketer J.J. Sefton, played by uh, William Holden, is suspected of being an informer. It's 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 kind of almost like a murder mystery because people are trying to escape their their uh, kind of uh, the camp that they're in, and the Germans always seem to be one step ahead of them, and they're pretty sure that they know one of them is sort of selling them out and. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's very, very interesting. A massive ensemble cast. They're all really, really, really good. Um, it's adapted by Wilder and Edwin Plum from a Broadway play by Donald Bevan and Edward, Edmund, sorry, Straczynski. I'm hoping I'll pronounce that right. Um, <laughs> which is based on their own experiences as uh, prisoners of war in Stalag 17B in Austria. And Straczynski plays one of the uh, prisoners. But mm. I think, well, I think Wilder extensively uh, rewrote the script. Um, I mean, that is, it, it is, it's just World War Two. It's a load of men all in a really tight, sweaty room, all keeping an eye on each other, trying to work out who's, who's the spy, you know, who's the one who's telling the Germans things. But there are moments of, sort of brevity and hilarity when they're kind of let outside. And... I, it's a, it's a funny film because, I mean, literally and, and curiously speaking, because it's quite light and fluffy in the, those early scenes. Some of it's horrible. There's yeah. Scene, yeah, there's a scene where two people try to escape and they're shot because obviously someone snitched. Yeah. And right at the beginning of the story. And yet there's a whole lightheartedness to this whole notion of, oh, you try. Yeah, you kind of have a clowny character. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this sort of German officer who's who's kind of... Yeah, who's, who there. gets on really well with them and they have a laugh yeah. and a joke. They'll, they'll and, take the mickey out of each other, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is really unrealistic, isn't it, probably? But yeah. um, he's quite a quite an eclectic character. Also worth mentioning that um, you, you mentioned there one of the um, one of the writers um, featured in the film. Also featuring in the film is Otto Preminger, another famous yeah. kind of uh, he's brilliant. 
I think it's German origins, Austrian or German origins, another classic Hollywood film director himself. And he's great as well as the, I can't remember the name of the character, but as the, yeah, the, the commanding thing and joking yeah. and being really friendly with basically all of his captives. Yeah. And What's just treating fun? them like that, you know, he's one of the lads. You know, it's, it's strange. Yeah. It's got um, William Holden, obviously, as, as the star. William Holden, yeah. So I think Charlton Heston yeah, I mean, and Kirk Douglas were considered for the role. They went for um, William Holden. Um, I think he'd just come off a couple of years before Sunset Boulevard with Billy Wilder, so they worked together before. Um, I like the fact that the film was actually shot in chronological order, which never, ever happens. Um, Normally, to save money, um, uh, it's much more expensive and time-consuming to sort of shoot a film like that. But they did it like that because – and they didn't tell anybody who the – who the identity of the informant is until literally the last day of filming or something like that, or the last couple of days of filming. So nobody knew who it was or was going. And you can kind of sense that there's that little bit of suspicion all the way between it. I mean, it was filmed in San Francisco, but they deliberately filmed it during the rainy season. So it's got that really horrible, muddy, kind of cold, bitter, awful weather, you know, kind of look to it. Uh, It's a really kind of gritty, nasty, nasty place to be. I mean, it's... um, William Holden was um, very, very good. He actually won the best Oscar for lead actor, although he felt it was um, he was only giving it to a consolation as a consolation for not winning Sunset Boulevard and that Burt Lancaster or Montgomery Cliff should have won for From Here to Eternity. But uh, he, I think he took it. The retrospective appointing of awards really irritates me. Get it right yeah. the first time, everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's weird that they, they made this film. I mean, I've, and... Um, um, he was already a kind of you know a popular filmmaker by then um, and the studio held it back for about a year because the paramount didn't think anybody would want to go and watch a film about prisoners of war i mean this is only eight years seven or eight years after the end of world war Two. when the uh, 1953 kind of korean war came along and yes. uh the american pow's coming back from that they kind of put it out as a, with a kind of exploitation angle yeah. Strange, strange film to sit on. It's you know, there's it's so much going for it. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned who was up for the um, potentially for the role. I, I'm not sure. I would you can't thought... imagine Charlton Heston. Charlton oh, Heston, role, no. Really. Kirk Douglas, yeah, could have yeah, been, yeah, uh, for sure. But um, I mean, it's, it's it's another one that's it's it's a very difficult tone to get right between comedy yeah. and tragedy, and he nails it. You know, it really does. It, yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's really difficult thing to get right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film, um, interesting film. What, again, I, I caught up with this. Um, it's a very, it's a famous title. I've, it was one of those bigger names that somehow I'd not seen and finally saw it in the run-up to this with preparation a week or so ago. I think that's free on Amazon Prime as well, actually, at the moment, um, if people want to check it out. Um, and um, it's it's a great film. I really, really liked it. It's quite dark, isn't it, actually? Yeah. Um, I, I like the way they kind of unravel. But there are light elements every now and then. It's not kind of permanently dark. There are, there are kind of, there's a lot of light and shade, you know? Yeah, it's not ace in the hole, this one. It's, it's no, definitely no. A, lighter, a lighter touch. And in a good way, I mean, I must admit, in the very first scenes when the German officers joking around with them, I thought, God, this is a bit over the top. It's a bit yeah. unbelievable. But once you kind of settle into the pattern... This was written by somebody who was there and yeah. went, went through maybe, this. So. Yeah, maybe this did happen then. Who knows? I'm, I'm surprised if it's the case. But, yeah, it may, maybe it was, yeah. 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 
and the film was later parodied uh, by Ripping Yarns, Michael Palin's show in uh, Escape from Stadagluft 112B. So you know that you've uh, you've made it when there's a parody version. <laughs> I love Ripping Yarns. I didn't realise that. I don't. I might have seen it, but I can't remember now. That's great. Good old Michael Palin. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, an excellent choice, I think. And that was certainly, along with maybe Witness for the Prosecution and one or two others, but was on the, the real close yeah. shortlist for me. We'll get, we'll get to into that at the end, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. But, yes, yeah, a great film. Right, OK. Are, are we on to the next one or any more points on Star No, yeah. I'm ready okay. to uh, move right. on. Right, I'm quite okay. curious let's, to see what you have next. Let's see which order this pans out in then. Um, I've just realised I haven't got the um, year of film written here. Oh, yeah, I have, yeah. I'll have it in front of me, don't worry. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, my number four, and this really could have been in any order probably, yeah. but my number four is um, The Apartment, 1950. Oh. No, 1960, sorry, um, which is an American romantic comedy drama, as described on Wiki, um, directed and produced here by Billy, and um, a screenplay that he co-wrote with... With uh, IAL Diamond. I think once he stopped working with Brackett, um, he he moved over to working, I think he worked with IAL Diamond yeah. a lot. Yeah, that's it. He worked with, obviously, worked from um, literary scripts as well, things like... Um, uh, double indemnity, for example, but um, but with this, yeah, this was the co co collaborations. Uh, Bra- Bra- um, the previous guy, what's his name again? Brackley, is it? Yeah, yeah, Bra- he, Brackley or Bracket? Sorry, Bra- Bracket. <laughs> apologies. Bracket, yeah, Brackett. He apparently um, Bracket, yeah. when when he was co writing, um, it wasn't all you know happy clappy stuff when they're writing together. Apparently, they used to have arguments. I, I heard um, an interview. I think it might be the one with Tony Curtis actually uh, talking on Sun Like It Hot, where he was saying. That um, the, the I think the, the the secretarial assistant or whoever it was that was working with them would be in the next room and she would hear things flying around hitting the walls. Yeah. They were having major arguments. He, on another, on, <laughs> I I in, in the I heard that uh, in the you know, kind of doing my research I heard that um, he believed that discard discord a kind of tug of war um, yeah. was a kind of vital ingredient to a successful yeah. collaboration. Um, and he used to have massive fights with quite a lot of his people that he worked with, particularly with Raymond Chandler on Double Indemnity, which we may or may not be talking about later. Yes. And I, I think I can imagine that as well. I haven't read that information about Chandler, but you can imagine it because one's one's a, a hard-boiled kind of crime writer and the other one is yeah. snappy kind of socially... Um, yeah, but he, he was like, oh, you know, I don't care. I just want to get the best produce the best piece of art that I can and this is all yeah. part of the birthing process. And he wasn't precious with it and you know, no. him and Brackett having rails and throwing stuff around was on a daily basis apparently and yet they still considered themselves getting on really well with each other yeah. <laughs> which is great um, but in this case IAL Diamond I don't know much about but he, yeah he was the co-writer on the apartment. They worked on films all the way up together all the way up to the 80s I think. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about him as a, as a apart from his collaborations with Billy Wilder, but um this one is is an absolute film classic. If anyone's not it seen is. it, why haven't you done so? As I said, it's a 1960 film, but it is in black and white still. It's um starring Jack Lemon, who he worked with on a, a number of occasions in the end. Um Shirley McLean. CC Baxter. CC yeah. Baxter, yeah. Um yeah, Shirley Shirley McLean. Fran Kubelik, yeah. Fred McMurray's in it, of course, as well. Fred McMurray's in it as Jeff Shell Drake, Baxter's boss, and Jack Crucian as uh, Dr. Dreyfus, his next door neighbour. Yeah. 
uh, William Waterman, uh, David White, Hope Holiday, great, great names. But anyway, the, the concept of this, and bearing in mind that Fred McMurray, who we mentioned, who's in Double Indemnity as well, yeah. um, is an insurance broker in that in that story. This film follows an insurance clerk, <laughs> played by Jack Lemmon, who's here, yeah. developing here um, who in the hope of climbing the corporate ladder, lets more senior co-workers use his upper side of West's apartment um, than to conduct... Um, extramarital affairs than should be appropriate. Um, he's attracted to the elevator operator, which is the character played by Shirley yeah. McLean. Shirley McLean is, is having an affair with his boss. Yeah. Um, and um, he doesn't know a about it. She's a very tragic character, isn't she? Yes, yeah. And I, I think this is probably her, arguably her best role. She's had two or three amazing performances. This is one of them. Yeah, um, I mean, I think Lemon, McLean and Crucian, the next door neighbour, they were all uh, Oscar nominated for this. It was nominated for ten Oscars, and it won five: best picture, best director, and best screenplay. Yeah. Now we we mentioned them. Ace in the Hole is um was critically and commercially a failure. This wasn't. <laughs> no. It, it was a it was a, a critical a widespread critical success, and it became apparently the eighth highest grossing film of 1960. Which um I think just from the top of my head was a pretty good year for film. I think. Yeah stuff out so to be the eighth highest grocer for what is a and it was a black and in 1960 we were very much in the color times by then um it was yeah. still a black and white film yeah. this there's only Tonto, been of course is the other famous since, yes since yeah. the since this film there have only been um two black and white hollywood films to win oscar best oscar go oh. on schindler's list yeah uh sorry since 19 since this one since this one uh, right, Schindler's List, and the other one uh, will be oh, it's ten years, be... eleven years ago. It wasn't the uh, the one about the silent cinema thing, was it? The artist, the artist, yeah, was it that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because that was the foreign language that won the best. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, it's um at the thirty third Academy Awards. This um this film was nominated for ten awards. Yeah, and yeah. Won won five of them as including best picture, best director, best screenplay. Um, yeah. Lemon, McLean, and Christian, as you said, were Oscar nominated, uh, and they also won Golden Globes. Lemon and McLean, um, and Lemon's it, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, this is only, I think this is, this is how long? This is one. It's only one year after Some Like It Hot, isn't yeah. it? I think so. Which I think was the first occasion where Billy Wilder and Jack Lemon kind of worked together, and I think they really enjoyed working together. Whether they threw each other things at each other, I don't know, but um, they. Yeah, yeah. I think um, following the, following all the success of that, Wilder and Diamond wanted to make another film with Lemon, and so I think they kind of pretty much pretty much wrote it with him in mind. I think the concept came from, believe it or not, Brief Encounter by Noel Howard, in which there was a tryst sort of thwarted in a friend's apartment, and the kind of Hayes Code prevented that kind of film being made. But this was another one. This was seen as quite a dirty movie when it came yeah. out. If you think of the concept of it, so. Um, Fred McMurray, he said that even for years and years afterwards, he'd have women attacking him in the street for making such a dirty film. Oh, really? <laughs> but it was another one where he's really pushing the censors and seeing what yeah. you can get away with and what you can't. And Yeah, because these yeah. were still to some degree sensitive times, weren't they? You know, oh, we were yeah, really, just coming definitely. out of the 1950s and, you know, someone lending their apartment for for illicit affairs between bosses and their staff. Not kind of not yeah. very um, safe. I think it got quite mixed reviews because of that. There was, it was quite controversial depictions of, sort of infidelity and adultery. It was quite revolutionary by the standards of the time. Yeah. When you think of things like um, 
the um, life of Brian and the amount of critical, um, yeah, well, just poison that was coming their way off the back of that from the religious quarters of British society. Um, you know, it, that's whatever it is. Twenty yeah. years later, um, you know, people could be quite precious. And in 1960, it was a very, very different world. It's yeah, it's, forget that, isn't it? Now, but as you said, we had we had Psycho and The Apartment, two films in black and white that year. Yeah. Uh, which are arguably the two best films of that year, I would say. Oh, definitely, I would say. I can't think of yeah, anything going else going anywhere near it. Yeah, I mean, a couple of couple of final words from me on it. I mean, it's it's come it's come to be regarded as one of the great films in America. It, it, yeah, it's been apparently it was it was one of twenty five films selected for inclusion in the United States Library of Congress National Film Registry, whatever connotations that mean. It's um, the American Film Institute and Sight and Sound magazine both constantly reference it as as a, an absolute classic and one of one of the great films um and the fact i've got it at number four tells you how good billy wilder is yeah <laughs> it could be could be debatable um the other it thing, may or may not be higher on my list yes yeah, so i've got a feeling it's somewhere in there um <laughs> the other thing to mention really for me was just jack lemon you've, you've already mentioned it but he's, yeah. he's excellent in this film he's i mean he's in almost every frame isn't he it follows yeah, him yeah. the whole way through he is and it's Arguably his best performance again yeah. that's the debate, but he's you know he at his best he's just fantastically entertaining. He's of course in some like it hot famously as well. Um, later on with Walter Matthau, one of the buddy buddy movies, yeah. it's called Buddy Buddy. Um, so he's you know he's 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 a collaborator with Billy Wilder quite regularly. He's he's great at what he does. He's good at. Those I think they made seven films, films together, Jack Lemmon and uh, yeah, and it's uh, sort of like a, it's like a slightly manic Billy Wilder. This is the second one, yeah. It's kind of like a slightly manic tone and persona to his comedy. You yeah. Know, quite intense and up, uh, slightly uptight, uptight but upbeat at the same yes. time. Yes. And he said he's, he's very... very he's very likeable, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I absolutely lo- I love him. I love this film. And uh, <laughs> the only other thing I'd mention on Jack Lemon is if anyone speaking of Amazon Prime, we're not getting sponsored by them. We should be. No, <laughs> that's yeah. mentioned. But the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is a, a great TV series that's on on that, that um, on that service, um, is uh, is she? was bugging me for a while. The main character, who she reminded me of for a short while, and then I realised it was Jack Lemon. She's basically a female Jack Lemon. Oh, okay. Similar era, actually. Cause yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's that's it for me on the part. Yeah, no. It's so yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I love the look of this film as well. It's they they've put a lot of time and thought. I mean, they they decided obviously to shoot it in black and white when they didn't when most other films were being made in color. Um, yeah. But so his, I mean, his apartment, the actual apartment, the subject of the subject of the film, it's all kind of like it was designed to kind of look small and shabby and. Um, I think they got quite a lot of the stuff, the possessions and things were from thrift stores. It's not like these massive apartments you see in the rest of the films of the he's, time. He's a middling type of employee. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you've got the uh, the the um, office where he works. If you look at this, it's quite interesting. Um, they use forced perspective, so they tried to they tried to make the look of this really like big long office where people are sat at their desks. Yeah. And make it in order to make it look bigger, they use smaller desks with smaller people all the way to the back <laughs> where they had children sat at the back. And if you watch it, you can actually notice that. It's oh, that's brilliant. Really, really cleverly done. Lemon and McLean, they, they worked together on Irma La Douche. I don't know if you've seen that film. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of like a, a weaker version in terms of you know, it's, it's appeal, but that's again an, an Amer- American 
sort of romantic comedy drama um again the same co-writing team um so uh that, that i watched that a while ago actually and that, that's quite a good film but you know that, that was the same team basically just to mention yeah. that one but this is this is on a different this level is, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. and it's not all laughing and joking there it goes to some dark places this film definitely yeah. a lot of light and shade this and I ca- cannot recommend it enough. Yeah, I mean, I love the fact that he quite often goes dark. All the all the things we've mentioned so far on our list, um, there's, there's a lot of dark elements to them, isn't there? Yeah. I like that. I like films that have got that edge. I push the boundaries a bit as well. Right, so that's my number four. What have you got, uh, Phil? So, Again, I'm guessing not the same thing, as you would have said so. No. So my number four, we spoke about it when we did the... Uh, film soundtracks of the 50s but we'll go into it from a different angle this time ah. 1950 it's sunset boulevard you're gonna go with that i'll yeah. try not to repeat any of the things i said then um, i shall i shall tell you at this point this is also my number three okay so, so next one on the list uh, for me as well uh, so, so let's it's get the, into it <laughs> it's the story of a uh, screenwriter again played by william holden um who plays the character joe gills he develops a dangerous relationship with a faded film star Gloria Swanson, um, playing the character Norma Desmond, who's uh, determined to make a triumphant return. Um, and this is, a, it's a very strange film, but it's, it, you can't take your eyes away from it, can you? It's, it's this relationship between a young man and an old woman, and she's a faded film star, and she is looking, planning to kind of get back to where she was. And it's, it's horrible to watch some of it, but it's, it's addictive viewing. Um, absolutely fascinating film. Yeah, it, it, it's incredible. I mean, all of my top, because I said this is my three, my top three, I think the reason I've gone for them as my top three, and this is the third on the list on that, is that in each of those three cases, the films don't waste a second. So in, in the case of Sunset Boulevard, every single frame, yeah. I think we're talking about him not being so much about the, the clever visuals. I think they are actually in this film. I think this is where... He's, oh, there's definitely a lot in here, yeah. Uh, it starts off with um, a scene where there's a dead body flying face down in a pool. Yeah, we don't know exactly how he's come to be in the a voiceover, movie. yeah. Voiceover is by the dead guy. Brilliant, yeah. genius concept. This comes at the end of a, just a tracking shot where there, there's a, a, a traffic scene of somebody going along a road. You can just see the roadway leads to this. Um, essentially, it's the police going to the scene of this. Is it a crime or certainly a, a dead body yeah. to be reported on? And the, yeah, that dead body guy who's played by William Holden again, who was in uh, Starleg, uh, then relates the story of how he comes to be going for a rather too long swim. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's fascinating. Story. So Sunset Boulevard, in, yeah. in case you didn't know, that's an actual street <laughs> right near Hollywood. Um, so it's, it has been associated with kind of uh, film production uh, since 1911, when Nesta, the, the sort of first Hollywood studio, opened up. And then as sort of salaries grew in the 1920s, all the actors all had big houses built as close to where they worked as possible. So it was all mansions all the way along for silent movie stars. And um, so a Los Angeles, a Los Angeles resident by then, Billy Wilder used to go for walks every now and then, and he'd see all these sort of silent movie star mansions. And he kind of started thinking about whatever happened to them and what yeah. do they do with their spare time now? And it, this kind of concept comes out and he's obviously come up with this very perverse story that yeah. apparently isn't based on anybody in particular, mm. but um, I think it's a kind of an amount yeah, of, of several people. 
It doesn't have to be, does it? Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a few things actually to say about that. So, yeah, Sunset Boulevard, I mean, they, they shot it at a house that wasn't actually on Sunset Boulevard. It wasn't yeah. where the film suggested it. And apparently that building no longer exists anyway. Um, but it was typical of the, the building yeah. area. What's interesting about this, and in that one of those early scenes, it, it shows you, there's there's a, a reference to um, Great Expectations, Mrs. Havisham, who famously in the story yeah. is haunted and then just goes on to be haunted or haunts herself about it for the rest of her life. There's long, very strong shades of this about Gloria's oh, definitely. character. Um, oh, Desmond, yeah. Who, who is a, a, a faded film star, clearly a genuinely massive star, who is still remembered by a number of people, but who has just become obsolete in terms of ongoing workings of Hollywood and so there's no roles for her she's clearly very wealthy I think the background story is she's invested in oil and all sorts of other stuff so she had she's an ongoing basis wealthy enough to live in this this big house that's sort of falling to bits falling to bits but it's flamboyant as well isn't it it's flamboyant and she's exactly the same so they they got the um the 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 kind of the, the house was designed by a guy called Hans Dreyer who's career went back to the silent movies and he actually also um reworked the interior designed the interiors of a lot of the houses when they were put in and it was kind of, it kind of made to, and a lot a lot of the design in it is um made to kind of look you know sort of faded glamour so although there was a bit of an age difference between Gloria Swanson and William Holden in real she looked after herself and he liked to drink. Yeah. Um, so they didn't actually look that much different. So she had to wear like loads of makeup to try and look glamorous and older and covering it up. And you can yeah. really see that. Um, the other character that we really, really have to um, mm. mention is a um, butler, I think we would butler call it. Butler to start with. And, and yeah. So, so that's up. Eric von Stroheim. He yes. plays... Um, he was actually a leading 1920s film director and he plays Max, a kind of faithful servant. And yeah. the two of them are, are quite the double act. Yeah, it, it adds to the creepiness, doesn't it? Yeah, he is. Yeah. I mean, I think Roger Ebert, he actually described the two of them together as like one of the greatest performances together of one of partnerships of all time. And there's something very, very believable about it and the way he kind of trails around after. <laughs> yeah. We won't, we won't say exactly what the relationship is actually, I think in case anyone hasn't seen it, but there's more to it than meets the eye. Yeah. Shall we say. Um, clearly she he's dedicated to her due to what's gone on in the past. We'll say no more than that, but there's, there's, there's just an oddity to his dedication. Yeah. There's, there's, I mean, there's oddities all over the place here. There's a scene with a dead chimpanzee in the house. Yes. In the film, which you just, I'd forgotten somehow. I'd forgotten about this until I rewatched it fairly recently. I went, Oh God. Yeah. There's that scene as well. She's got this, obviously this pet chimp that's died. And that's, that's part of one of the early scenes. And, there's just so many oddities about this film. As you said, it feels like it's a neglected, fallen record. I, I, sort of, I love the bit where she goes to visit Cecil B. DeMille. While it, and it's actually sort of happened while he was filming Samson and Delilah. Yes, And right, you actually yeah. go and see the set and she the meets actual, him. And the they talk set of that film. Yeah, it? and, they, and, and they, they, they talk about making another film. And it, it's, yeah. And there's, there's, it's it's racked and absolutely laced with delusion. She's been co- contacting him 
being ignored, uh, yeah. of course. Then there's a misunderstanding, which leads her to go to the studio. And clearly people remember her. She's able to blag her way straight into the film studio just because people recognise her. Um, she goes straight up and he receives her and has a conversation yeah. with her because that's the, the, that's the sway she's got. Yeah. But in terms of actually getting a role, you realise that's just a, a false dawn of delusion, which just is going nowhere. And, um, yeah, I mean, you've got Cecil B. DeMille playing himself, himself. in the film. Eric and, lo- and loving it by the looks of it. Yeah, I mean, this is this one sort of, of the, bombastic yeah. performance playing himself. <laughs> and he, yeah, he's, he's great. He's really good in the role. Yeah, and he, um, he's he's a proper heavyweight filmmaker of the very early and, uh, years. And a lot of the old school Hollywood um, hated yeah. hated this film um, mm. that, because it, uh, Louis De Mayer, um, Louis B Mayer from MGM, he found yeah. it incredibly offensive. Yeah, it rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way, which is why it's interesting. It was filmed by Paramount at Paramount. So they it was kind of yeah. self self critical in a way. They they were happy to allow that to happen. The um, yeah. famous Paramount gates that's used uh, you see you'll see over yeah. um, any shots of Paramount Studios, which was used in this film, um, used to be the main gate, and apparently now that's just a side gate. Um, yeah. Possibly by the time of this film, actually, um, uh, but it's it's the more ornate, beautiful kind of and iconic uh, gate, and that's the one she goes through. Yeah, this ridiculous, <laughs> this ridiculous, ridiculous car, car. Yeah, which is which is just like, like like herself and her house was sort of just designed to be just a little bit out of date, you know. Yes, yeah, just just a little bit, and it's um, I'm trying to find what it was called. I wrote it down somewhere. Um, uh, oh, here we go. Uh, it's an Isotta Franchini. Or Fraschini, Isotta Fraschini. I'd never even heard of it. And no, I think I've never heard the of it. It's it's beautiful, stunning, but it's ridiculously out of yeah. date. It is flamboyant, elaborate, um, overly coiffured. It's got leopard skin seats, which is a, a bit yeah. of a Irish sort of addition, which is kind of laughed at in the story. Yeah. And, and when she parks at the studio, some of the studio hands come up and go, Oh, is this the car? And they're kind of looking and laughing. Yeah. And, enjoying the spectacle of it um and in fact the car is the reason that uh, the studio were trying to call her she thought because they wanted to borrow it yeah (laughs) it's so ridiculous and so unique um but it's 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 a it's a kind of like a strange because to me it is a love letter to hollywood in a a it is probably the best film ever made about hollywood i'd say i would say so yeah. yeah and it's a it's a kind of strange combination of film noir black comedy and kind of character study mm. all kind of rolled into one and theatrical kind of flamboyance as well her performance in it when she, i mean she she is this ridiculous character who's from the silent cinema yeah. where you had to exaggerate all your gestures and all that sort of stuff uh, but but in normal conversation well normal by her standards conversation she's acting out those gestures she's she's a, a caricature a walking character yeah when she's having just ordinary conversations in her house with, you know, with um, uh, William Holden's character or with, uh, with the butler, she's just, um, she, she's just over the top all the time. She's constantly performing because that's the only thing she knows. That's no, the, no, exactly. She thinks that's worth being. And she, and yeah. she can't let it go. And it's, it's utterly tragic. Um, yeah. And she's absolutely fantastic. Gloria Swanson. I mean, I think uh, she was an actual, 1920s film star herself yeah. who now oh, moved into star, yeah. moved in, and then had sort of moved into television and stage and I think she got offered a lot more money to do this than she was used to unfortunately after it she got 
since so many scripts have sort of parodied this character that she ended up retiring. Yeah. The, the original people that they had in mind for this film, you know, I always like bringing it up. They originally wanted Mae West, who refused point blank, who obviously saw herself as something of a sex symbol and sort of said, yeah. I'm not playing a faded person. I'm at the height of my powers. And, it wouldn't uh, have suited her anyway, I don't think. No. And, and, um, raw. <laughs> and for William Holden, they originally wanted Marlon Brando. I'm not, mm. I don't. I don't. I mean, he's a, he's a, a fantastic actor, but I'm not quite sure this is a, will be quite. Let's, kind of let's just say fate has dealt us a, a decent hand with that regard. So I know yeah. the either of them are. Super. I think a lot of actresses passed on this film. I think it was George Cougar, the director, in the end recommended um, Swanson, yeah. and yeah, I think she did a lot of the publicity for the film because she didn't really have any other work to go to afterwards, yeah. and it was a box office smash. The, the William Holden character, the main male male lead, um, plays plays um, a guy called Joe Gillis, who's basically at the beginning of the story, well, after the bit where he's lying down in the swimming pool, yeah. uh, the beginning after that where he starts relating his story, he describes how he's a struggling scriptwriter. You know, there's there's the um, the the debt collection guys are turning up at his yeah. apartment. They're trying to tow his car away. Uh, by freak of chance, that's how he ends up in this in glorious Swans. Sorry, in Norma Desmond's mansion, and um, he's yeah he's struggling and he's torn between two things: one needing money and needing a bump up. Uh, and he discovers that Norma Desmond is trying to write this ridiculously over the yeah. top. And, f- and apparently appalling uh, screen yes. she's imagining is going to get made with her as the star. Yeah. So she's, he's compromising himself along those lines when really he wants to just be an ordinary jobbing writer. Yeah. Who's on maybe making something of himself. And there's a, there's a female character in this played by Nancy Olsen, who was nominated for an Oscar supporting, wasn't she on this, who, who plays this, this girl next door type of character who's gone to Hollywood and is, has got some talent and she's got some get up and go. And she likes uh, Joe Gillis's character. She likes him, fancies him and wants to get together with him, I think. Yeah. Although she's kind of in, engaged to somebody who whose sexuality is slightly ambiguous in the story. Yes. But anyway, um, Nancy fancies Joe, wants to work with him moreover. and he, But he's pulled away from that by this this gradually more... She's, she's essentially just drawing him she into... Starts- Dressing him and yeah, dressing yeah. She, she takes sells that she lets the car get towed away, not helping him out to pay off the bailiffs. Um, she then starts buying him suits, and there's this, there's yeah. a series of scenes where he's emasculated, is there's, there's humiliation, he's taken to a tailor's, and it's quite clear from the way that the tailor is behaving that this isn't the first time this kind of thing's happened, yeah, yeah, he's very much clocked as a kept man straight away even though this is very early in it's almost before he realizes he's a kept man himself yeah and there's so many little details like that again it's wider at his best where everything just makes sense within the story so beautifully yeah i think william holden's also very very good um he's great this was his proper first film um, after coming back from world war ii i think they'd originally cast montgomery clift and he pulled out literally on the day of filming uh, which infuriated Wilder and they got yeah. and he, I think Holden was a, a contract actor available and he was kind of through default he therefore ended up in the film and I think he's he could have been great. all right Montgomery Clift I reckon yeah he could have played the role um but it's it's got as I said so many details that really every single scene in that film matter and 
it's another film that um, had the opportunity to be made in colour and he chose black and white because you can't make a film about a 1920s faded film actress and then make it in colour. Um, it was, yeah, it, the cinematography was done by John F. Seitz, who worked with Wilder on Double Indemnity. Um, and they, they went, they went full noir in quite a lot of this. <laughs> yeah. There is a lot of noir. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The voiceover actually to start with right from the beginning and that whole kind of savvy knowing kind of talk, you know, as, as, it, as the story's being unraveled by the lead character, that's very noirish to start with. There's lots of light and shade. Yeah. Uh, there's obviously, I suppose you could call it a femme fatale of sorts, very yes. than normal. Um, and it's, you know, it's set in a typical place. You'd, you'd get New York or you'd get L.A., um, Hollywood in particular. Those are the sort of locations, the settings for film noirs, aren't they, as well? Um, just the way the narrative set up, I think, um, the sort of characters involved and how they interact. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a great. great as you said, it trans, transcends various genres. And I said it is probably is the best film about Hollywood. Um, there's a number of other details to go into. Obviously, the, the famous uh, close-up uh, comment in the scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, where it's the closing scene of the film where she's coming down the stairs. Uh, again, I don't know whether to mention the, the context of why she's coming down the stairs, how she is or when she is, but she's been going to be taken away for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's various people just letting her. They're, she's they're struggling to persuade her to come down. They're, they're they're treating her with almost tentative respect, not wanting to manhandle her. But they they need to get her downstairs. And in the end, they convince her to go down because um, these these camera this camera crew's there. Really yeah. Yeah. And she's in her head. She's thinking this is her big Hollywood scene. So she's there's, there's the famous scene. All right, Mister Demille, I'm ready for my close up. You know, yeah. DeMille's not there. Um, <laughs> this is often misquoted line, by the way, but it's all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And then you see her come down the stairs and it turns into a close-up. And there's yeah. this haunting kind of performance. It's brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. Closing scene. One of the most famous, one of the best closing scenes to a film ever. Um, and, you know, just adds an extra bit of detail to what is already a yeah. film. Yeah. Um Last collaboration between uh, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett. I don't think anybody knows why, but after that, yeah, Brackett's career waned and, um, yeah, Wilder went off and sort of struck up a new partnership with IAL Diamond, as we've mentioned. The only other thing to mention is the soundtrack on this is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. For more information, go listen to our 50s soundtrack podcast. Yeah, it really is a fantastic soundtrack. Just adds another element. Yeah. There's also a number of cameos. We've already mentioned Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah. And Eric von Strawheim, well, not a cameo, he's an amazing yeah. um, But a gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, who, if anyone doesn't know who she is, she was an absolute tyrant um, in the classic Hollywood era. Um, there's her, and I've forgotten the name of the other one, there's two famous gossip columnists of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, who were brutal. And they okay. were on... They were, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, well, you, well, you've seen the Coen Brothers film, haven't you? Yeah. Um, Hail Caesar, yeah. where Silver Swinton plays two yeah. sisters, two characters. Yeah, essentially that that is a parody of of those those. Oh, things. okay, yeah, yeah. Hedda Hopper was probably the more famously notorious of the two. She would essentially uh, brutal criticism. She had her nose to the ground on absolutely everything. So you've got this clash of Hollywood producers and various other bods trying to keep their stars clean and away from scandal and head of hoppers on the scene trying to destroy them at any given moment. So she plays um, a role in this, just in that end scene. Yeah. 
she turns up. She's sitting in the bedroom. She's the woman in the bedroom who's reporting on the phone, um, which yeah. is a brilliant little parody of, of that element of Hollywood. Um, it also features cameos by, and I think this is appropriate for a film about a silent cinema star, leading silent actors, Buster Keaton, famously, who everyone knows. Yeah. And two people I'm not so familiar with, H.B. Warner and Anna Q. Nilsson, who are the, what are they called? The, the people that play Cart Bridge with her? They've got the cartoon. Oh, there's a nickname for them, isn't there? Yeah, there's yeah. a nickname. It's like the cartoons or the, or the, the kind of the match. Yeah. And they, they're these sort of these drones. I can't different. believe that they sort of be there sending themselves up, really. They, how aware they were of what they were in, I'm not sure. Yeah, this is this is the thing. I mean, a lot of America, American culture doesn't send itself up, but when it does, no. Simpsons does it on TV. But when it's when it happens either on yeah. TV or on film, it's it's great. They usually nail it because they they know themselves more than anyone else. And if they can be self referential enough to recognise, yeah, that, it's like that extra, extras episode with Les Dennis. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so knowing knowing kind of self-parody yeah. is is great. Um, this film, I think we may have mentioned already, 11 Academy Awards, um, including four nominations. Uh, sorry, nominations in all four acting categories. I mentioned Nancy Olsen, obviously, the, yeah. the supporting, Eric von Stroheim, presumably for the for the male sports, and obviously the two leads as well. It won three. It's often ranked amongst the greatest movies ever made, as it was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the US Library of Congress, the people we mentioned earlier. Um, that was back in 1989. It was Oscar nominated in the four main categories and it won none of them, as you mentioned. The yeah. only other films, t- only two other films have ever done that. Um, Our Man Godfrey. Yes. <laughs> and and, probably, and, Amer- yeah. and Amer- more recently, American Hustle. Oh, know. right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's un- unexpected. Um, uh, also, one, one other thing American Film Institute's list of 100 best American films of the 20th century as well and it was 16th um i think on their 10th anniversary list as well uh 16th place so you know i mean that's number four on my billy only billy Wilder films yeah (laughs) i know exactly and we as i said we've got um yeah i've got the apartments at number four and it's it's um it's ridiculous that those two films are so highly regarded and yet they can't get into our top three eh well Sunset Boom, I'll get into, into my top yeah. three, obviously, yeah. Okay, speaking of which, well, we've we've already talked about my, my number three. Uh, what have you got at number three? Can I grab a beer? Oh, yes, you can, yes. <laughs> Why not? We'll have a Priorities. Beer. I, I would tell you what I'm drinking now because I moved on to something else, but it's completely unreadable. There's just a really good pattern on this tin, but I can't actually read it in this light, so I'm going to have to... Uh, Come back to that one later. But yeah, so we'll, we'll take a pause there. So we've got your number three and then both of our top twos coming up after a short beer intermission. And so we are back and Phil is relubricated. I am. I'm on the Camden uh, Town Brewery again and I'm on their off-menu IPA. It's great. And I'm getting out my magnifying glass because my glasses need a new prescription. I've finally discovered what beer that was. It's called Perla for Svin, whatever that is. IPA, 6.3%. It was really nice, actually. Um, One of the Beer 52 lot, uh, which is lovely. And I'm just now moving on, having finished that, to a nice uh, tin of 
Urgite Brewing Company. I think that's how you pronounce this. Yeah, what? That sounds like Vic Roy Reeves doing the club style. Or well, you have a go. What's that? What's that say? Yeah, I'm not even going to try that. <laughs> U-I-L-T-J-E. How yeah. do you pronounce that? Answers on the postcard, yeah, please. Yeah, probably. Something like that. Brewing Company, anyway. It's got a load of cartoon like, storyline on yeah. it. Oh, it's a bit weird. Um, and it is essentially a prima donna limoncello blonde, 5%. Um, limoncello blonde. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to this, Phil. I like my weird stuff. <laughs> it's an adventure, <laughs> isn't it? It's a science experiment. <laughs> Somebody posted me a picture of, of, of a beer. Um, it was jam roly poly, <laughs> Northern mm. Monk. I think bloody, I've not had it. Had, I think we've had that at your birthday last year. Yeah, I think we did actually, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, it's really tasty. Right. Anyway, that's enough about the beer. So my n- my number three. Yeah. So just to recap, so I've got Ace in the hole at five. You went for Stalin, um, seventeen. Seventeen. I went for the apartment at four. You went at- four. Your number four. I went for Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard, which I had at number three. Yeah, that's right. And so So now my number three, which I'm guessing is your number two, (laughs) (laughs) is Double Indemnity. You are correct, sir. (laughs) We're steaming through this, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. Double Indemnity. What a great film! I'd never seen it before. Oh, did you not? No. It's, oh, it's brilliant. Wow. Right. So let's let's start off. Uh, Los Angeles insurance representative, um, Fred, uh, well, Walter Neff, played by Fred McMurray. Um, he lets an alluring housewife, uh, Barbara Stanwyck, seduce him into a scheme of insurance fraud and murder that arouses the suspicions of his colleague, an insurance investigator. So basically, she's the ultimate femme fatale, isn't she? The normally sort of reserved and professional guy falls into her clutches and he and she says well if my husband if you were to sell my husband a policy and he were to die we could run away with the money the double indemnity in the title uh, refers to a clause in certain life insurance policies that double the payout in cases where death is accidental but it's only on certain circumstances that that happens so they they try and engineer it and again that's not really a spoiler that's all in the first 20 minutes or so of the film yeah, exactly. Pretty much the first film noir film ever made, I would I would guess. It's it's certainly one of the first and certainly the first really, really influential one. So this is before the age of I mean somebody mentioned that um uh who is it? There's some of the some of the film noir characters or sort of actors that you've seen won't have even been uh, in the film industry by this point. I don't think Kirk Douglas had made a film by this point, for example. Yeah. Like that. I think that's right. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of the early big influences. I think film noir comes from a mixture of, there's a bit of German expressionism, there's a bit of general European influence. Certainly it, there's something very European about film noir, not just the title, but yeah. uh, in general. Um, I say, yeah, I don't really know. You know this stuff. I've, well, I haven't studied it. Like you have. Expression, ex- German expressionism, German expressionism, which Alfred Hitchcock worked in very early on as well, is all about light and shade. It's also about abstract shapes and things in that, in that particular case. But in terms of the light and shade, that's very much one of the things about film noir it often but not always has voiceovers uh which again we'll talk about in a moment but there's a big similarity between sunset boulevard and this yeah there's a scene that's at the end of the story at the beginning of the film and then it leads to him narrating back what's happened so there's a very strong 
resemblance to that. Um, so, so that is a typical feature of film noir. And just that, as you said, the film femme fatale characters, and she was the very first, I think, really definitive femme fatale character. Interesting character, Barbara Stanwyck, who's got this. I yeah, we've spoken like, about her before, haven't we? Southern Belle, isn't she? I think screwball got, comedies. Yeah, got kind of a mixture of like a a rugged, slightly tomboyishness to her, but also a deeply kind of and slightly abstract sexual sex appeal as well. She's extremely electric on the screen. Yeah. She's not an out-and-out beauty in a screen goddess type of way, but she she has a certain... It's definitely a sex appeal thing that is, is what's going on yeah. here. And it's interesting, actually, when you mentioned at the beginning the... How did you describe Fred McMurray's character? I can't remember what you just said. Something about him being is the... It- yeah, a Los Angeles insurance representative. <laughs> so something like manipulatable or something like that. Yeah, he's he's uh, seduced into a scheme of insurance fraud and murder. Yeah, and he kind of well, he by is. their luring housewife. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly the case, but I think it's interesting because you've just seen it for the first time. Yeah, that's the impression I had when I saw it the first time. When I watched it um, later, the second time, and then more recently as well. You realise he's he's pretty. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's actually a big flirt. He's quite a savvy yeah. kind of. I mean, the the first scene when he goes to the house to see about renewing a, an automobile yeah. uh, insurance policy because it's about to lap. That's why he goes there. And the the maid answers the door, and then she comes from upstairs, looks down on him, you know, metaphorical yeah. and all that. Looks down on him, and um, and they look at each other, and obviously there's an immediate attraction. And then there's a scene where she's walking down the stairs, and there's a close up on her lower legs and her ankle, and there's a big thing about the anklet that she's wearing. Yeah, and she sits down, and he makes some very flirty, yeah, appropriate comment about the anklet. Um, and you know, he he's completely uh trying to yeah he's no shrinking violet is he yeah (laughs) i'd forgotten that when i saw it the second time after the first time if you see what i mean um but he is nonetheless he is manipulated into what happened yeah he's a a willing accomplice it's probably this is this is actually the um kind of broke quite a lot of ground new ground so this is the first time ever in a hollywood movie that they kind of explored the means, motives, and opportunity for committing a murder. This is back in 1944. I don't know if we mentioned that. So this is before Rope and the other films like that. You yeah. know, it's this is the first time you kind of saw this this sort of happen. Um, so this was based on a novel by James M. Kane, who also is known for um, Mildred Pierce and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Mm-hmm. But the interesting one here is that. Um, Billy Wilder co-wrote this with Raymond Chandler, who's better known as a detective novelist. He actually cameos in this film as the man um, reading outside of the office. It's the only bit of film that he's ever been in, I think. (laughs) I discovered in research for this podcast that he's half British. I didn't know that as well. Yeah, yeah. Although it says his mother was born in Southern Ireland, so I don't know if... At this time, he was new to Hollywood, Mm. um, and he saw this as a golden opportunity um him as we mentioned earlier him and wilder did not get on at all and wilder's quite happy not getting on um i think chandler offered to resign and quit on many 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 occasions and but he he put a lot of blood sweat and tears into this film and chandler um, wasn't well, wasn't that well known yet was he no he, he wasn't no but- he wasn't as famous. I think as Wilder sort of saw it. He admired his kind of gift with words and thought this is someone who can really 
do a lot of work with his source material. John Lee did a lot of field work. He visited a lot of the sort of script locations and he made pages and pages and pages of notes and kind of the, the sort of the seedy Los Angeles realism kind of, sort of seeps into the film, which is all kind of all done by him. But as we said, they didn't get on. This led to, unfortunately, Chandler, Chandler who had a bit of a drink problem, um, going off the rails a bit a drink problem that eventually killed him and not for a few years afterwards but um i think the ex- the experience of working with an alcoholic actually led uh, wilder to, to his next film which was the uh, lost weekend about an alcoholic writer very is, very good I, film very it's a good. very 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 good just missed my top five as well that was another one on the shortlist yeah, yeah. but this is a uh, yeah a, 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 a film that broke a lot more ground also in terms of um what you could get away with on screen and and they yeah. really really pushed this kind of as, <laughs> as much as they could including that early scene with the with the, with the legs on the stairs actually because that you know the whole thing about showing ankles and then she being able yeah. to for more than a couple of seconds and all that sort of stuff and here you've got a woman who's clearly being sexualized the male gaze but yeah you know, the, the guy sitting at the bottom of the stairs look at her coming down and the camera is blatantly just on the lower part yeah. of it. Well, that would have ruffled a few feathers back in 1940. Was it 1944? Would it be 1944. They still had the Hayes Code. It showed what you, yep. you could never show the um, the um, the criminals getting away with it. One other thing that you couldn't show in a novel, they both commit suicide, but you weren't allowed to show that either by the Hayes Code. Oh, really? So they had to change quite a lot of the kind of original material around to kind of get it to get away with it. In, in, in essence, they kind of did. The um, the opposite of committing suicide, didn't they? Yeah, you know what I mean. They kind of um, reversed it a bit. Anyway, but, but um, yeah, I mean, it's James M. Kane as well, very gritty. I mean, 1943 novel, the same title, and he's a very gritty writer as well. Um, I've only noticed now, actually, just reading that it was originally published as an eight part serial for Liberty. Magazine. I think that was that was a kind of pulp fiction of, of the yeah. sort of the 30s and 40s, wasn't it? Stuff, wasn't it? Um, Fred McMurray, it's quite a word about it. It was a strange one. So before this film, he was played like happy go lucky good guys. Yeah. And uh, I think Wilder kind of pestered him into it. And um, he, in the end, he said it was the best picture he ever made, considering yeah. then later made the apartment with. Uh, yeah. I mean, it is a little whiff of um, James Stewart there, cast against type stuff. Yeah. I mean, Alan Ladd, James Cagney, Spencer Tracy, and Gregory Peck all passed on the character. They said, I'm not, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so he was not exactly first choice. I know it's easy to say now, but I think he's perfect, Fred McMurray. It, it, yeah. There's a slight hamminess, which again, this sort of B-movie kind of persona, which is another trait of film noir, that tends yeah. to be slightly hammy. At the same time, at, at that time, um, the two leads were the highest paid man and woman in Hollywood. Mm. So oh, Stanwick, yeah, Stanwick was very reluctant to take the part, feeling it would have a, a, an adverse effect on her career. And Wilder said to her, you were a mouse or an actress. Come on. <laughs> Badgered her into it in much the same way that he did with McMurray. Yeah. Um, interesting combination. It's also got Edward, Edward G. Robinson, another actor I love. Yeah. Brilliant. If, if you don't know who he is, he's a, a guy with it's hard to describe his face. He's got an incredible, striking utterly distinctive face, quite sort of round, kind of horizontally oblong-looking face almost, very claggy. Yeah. And he, he's played Little Caesar in a, an early gangster film. He's played um, he's played some brilliant roles, The Woman in the Window and stuff like that. Um, this was obviously a fairly early role for him. 
Um, he plays essentially uh, Fred McMurray's character's boss. Yeah. Who, um, they seem to have a close kind of sort of friendship in a working environment. We would probably suggest there's might be there's an a set there's a, a a suggestion that there might be more from Edward G. Robinson's character yeah. side uh, than than just that yeah. to what he would like from it. But um, he's playing the boss, and essentially the story goes that um, this crime takes place. Obviously, the investigators come in to see if there's any legitimacy to the claim. Yeah. Um, the that's, that's all fascinating, all of that, the way they yeah. get into it, they, how much is involved in you, you know they're the ones that want to see if there's anything to this, but they're convinced by Barbara Stanwyck's performance when she strolls in and looks pretty innocent in this scenario. And when she goes out, it's actually Edward G. Robinson's character who is picking up the vibes that there's something not right here. Yeah. A, a clearer judge of character. Uh, and the story goes on from there. We won't say how it ends or anything, but it's it's kind of a really nicely set up plot. And the way it twists and turns a little bit is really nice. There's an interesting character as well because Barbara Stanwyck's husband has a daughter, from, presumably from yeah. this relationship, who plays a certain smaller role, which kind of affects the story a bit as well. Yeah, uh, He's involved with some other guy, which also plays a part in the story. Um and that's kind of interesting. Yeah, well. but it's all very, very, very totally plotted. They fit a lot into your hour and 45 minutes. They really do. Yeah, they, they really do. And uh, yeah, Fred McMurray, it's interesting you said he was one of the big stars at the time because he's got that kind of B-movie-ish look about yeah. it. When you watch it back, if you've if you've only seen it once, it'll be interesting to see what you think when you watch it again. Because when I watched it the second time, I didn't feel so much of that notion when I watched it again. Yeah. I felt oh, more okay. like he was... He was really inhabiting the role, and he was more, you know, more of an A, a class actor. Which, yeah, you know, he's a really good actor anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In terms of you know the, the the persona element is kind of that Hollywood's pizzazz. He he, I think it it goes with the fact that I thought he was more flirty when I watched it. Yeah. Than when I saw it the first time, he, he's a good actor, and he's really no, no. really fits the role well. We've got to talk about. Barbara Stanwyck's wig, though. So, so apparently, yeah. So she, (laughs) she obviously isn't blonde. She wears an incredibly bad blonde wig in this on purpose because they want to portray this phony personality that she has. Or is it? Is it on purpose? Because I've, I've heard. I I watched the commentary. That's that was the way I kind of looked at it. And that, to me, is how they should have sold it. and They should have kept quiet. But apparently, there's only. the Blu-ray commentary. There's uh, there's an American guy and an English guy. I think they're academics. I can't remember who they are. But they're Hollywood based, and the American guy is talking about how uh, he, he knew some of the people involved, and he, he said um, apparently they they had the wig on there, maybe for that reason, maybe not. I don't know. But after a couple of days or a few days, Billy Wilder's going, we need to we need to get rid of this wig. It looks really bad, and it was too late into the shooting, and they had oh, to okay. it. So. Although they I thought have... it was symbolism. Yeah. I mean, I was oh, really yeah. too much into it because <laughs> there's a lot of light and shade and making the most of it. And yeah, I mean, to explain, kind of, you, got... like, you have these sort of grubby rooms and bright against bright Californian locations. And, yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, she she's in an unhappy marriage, and then she goes to his apartment, which is pretty unremarkable. And then she's kind of complimenting him on it, isn't she? Going, well, this is you. Know, you got this up set up really well. How do you how do you kind of who looks after it? I have a woman coming to to clean and whatever. But she's got this wig, which is kind of it's hard to explain. It's kind of like almost like curlers have been on overdrive on the front fringe. And then there's bits down to the... She's got sort of shoulder-length hair, isn't she? And it's yeah. kind of curled inwards on both sides as well. 
and it looks a ridiculous hairstyle or wig, whatever it is, just on the outset, and yet she's got sex appeal despite the yeah. wig. Um, kind of weird. I mean, by, by she both her hair along those lines later, didn't she? Yeah, both leads are brilliant in this. I mean, these are characters that would be quite easy to get difficult. They they're quite treacherous, both of them, but they do bring a little bit of nuance to it, and they they do they do sell it. They are very very believable. Yeah. The the commentary actually an interesting point from the whoever that American guy is. He also said it's very rare to have a film where um, both of the leads are pretty incorrigible characters they're quite unlikable they're self yeah they're, they're self-absorbed and they are essentially sort of poisonous for each other and that's you could say the same about ace and hole and sunset Boulevard. yeah you probably could and i mean he, he was talking about the thomas crown affair as being yeah. a acidic relationship thing i guess you could say um gone with the wind as a bit of that yeah. with gable and vivian lee but anyway but yeah these two characters are just they are very acidic aren't they um it's ambiguous as to what their 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 end game is there's a suggestion at one point that um she's actually playing him off to go with somebody else which may or may not be true something to do with the daughter's boyfriend um we're not quite sure what his overall motive is is he's going to ditch her um she's threatening to do something that will cause him a problem if he does um, and they're in it for a, you know for their own their own goals, um, but I, I I love the way Fred McMurray wears a, a big shouldered suit like no one else yeah. as well. I think Robert Mitchell is <laughs> the only one who can carry that off. <laughs> you know, it's the classic Hollywood era hats, fedoras, yeah. and just you know cool jackets and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Smoking galore going on, of course, as well, which back then was cool. Uh, yeah, isn't it? Uh, it was a massive box office smash what i love is that um have you ever seen that episode of father ted where there's the film that people were picketing and they they, and they were trying to ban it and it ended up being a massive smash because so many people got told not to go and watch this film that they all go and watch it well that's exactly what happened with this film it's, it's, it's reverse psycho this kind of thing careful now exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's that so many people imploring people not to see it that everyone went, oh, God, I gotta go watch that. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't want someone to see things, don't tell them not to watch it. Or, mm. yeah, it's just, it's obvious, isn't it? You know, it's, I've got a secret I can't tell you. Right. I want to know what it is. Or, I've got a secret I'm going to tell you, but don't tell anyone. Yeah. yeah exactly. They always do. And it's the same with this, you know. It's just, if you want to make sure someone watches it, tell them not to. Or get it banned. That's even better. Yeah. That's a guaranteed number one hit there for you, isn't it, if it's in the music charts? <laughs> anyway, so there we go. Um, yeah, I mean, um, just having a look through some of the other background stuff. Um, so I, know, I know that Alfred Hitchcock particularly loved this film and yeah, I thought pretty much understand why. Um, yeah. A quick note on the score, Mikos Rosha, you can pronounce oh. it better than I can. Mikos um, Rosha. He, yeah. he was, uh, this is one of his earlier ones, he was Oscar nominated for this and they brought him a lot of success from, from which he could pretty much choose whatever yeah. projects he wanted to do. And we, we talked and about it, on the film music uh, podcast. We talked about him a lot a year before, he, yeah. He is one of the greatest film composers of all time, mark my words, he's he's absolutely magnificent. John Williams, yeah. all, all the others are all influenced by him, he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, no, that's pretty much all of it. That's my number three and your number two. Uh, Well, I was just going to say seven Academy Awards as well. Um, I think we might mention it. I can't remember. Um, And guess what? It's also on the Library of Congress list as well. You know, they know their stuff, this Library of Congress in the US and the National Film Registry. It's three Billy Wilder films we talked about in a row here. All of them are on those lists. And I mean, the next one will be as well. 
Yeah. Well, as I said, that's your number three. It's my number two. So which makes my number two and your number one, Some Like It Hot. Yes. 1959. Yes, indeed. indeed. I knew you were going to pick this as number one. Yeah. Well, it was was up in the air, to be honest, until quite late on. I mean, at the very end. As as we said earlier, the top four were pretty much indistinguishable, depending on what day of the week it is and what mood you're in. Yeah. Fantastic. Number two. Um, Some Like It Hot, 1959, after two male musicians, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemon, witness a mob hit, they flee the state in an all-female band disguised as women. Further complications set in, particularly in the form of uh, singer Sugar Kane, played by Marilyn Monroe. Again, screenplay by Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond. Um, uh, Wilder... um, I think they collaborated something like 12 times in total. We sort of mentioned a bit of that earlier. It's based on a 1935 film, Fanfare of Love, which didn't have gangsters. Um, six Oscar nominations, including Best Actor, Director, Screenplay, and it won only for the costumes, which is rubbish, really, quite frankly. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah. Again, um, on the we've mentioned the Hayes Code a bit. Um, this was produced without the approval of the Hayes Code because they didn't like cross-dressing. <laughs> um, but this but but the scope of the Hayes Code, this is 1959 and um, by by this point, it weakened since the early 50s due to kind of greater social tolerance for taboo topics in film. Um this was kind of the bit of the death knell for it, I think, really uh, the, the overwhelming success of this basically led to it being replaced. Yeah. So it should have been. Absolutely. Firstly, got to say that is a criminal offence that I only won for wardrobe. That is oh, I know. ridiculous. There's some really interesting stories about um, <laughs> about the wardrobe. I've got to start with that. You've got to love Marilyn Monroe. This is one of her definitive performances. Oh, yeah, that outfit she she wears on the boat is practically. <laughs> how do they even get? Oh, we could get away with that now. It's... She's practically naked. <laughs> I mentioned I mentioned this interview I watched with it's on the DVD features for um some like it hot with Tony Curtis he's sitting down with Leonard Malpin uh, Mal- yeah. Malpin I think his name is yeah, the film yeah. critic and historian and he's talking about the fittings and he said they went in for the fittings for the costumes and um, first of all um, they, they measured up. Marilyn Monroe. Then they measured up Tony Curtis, and then someone says, "You've got, oh, you've got a better, better ass than Marilyn Monroe." And he tells her that, and she goes, "Yeah, but you haven't got these." And reveals her breasts. <laughs> <The> <laughs> I can imagine hair. that, <laughs> which is quite magnificent. Um, it was also interesting. He was talking about the pouting. He said for for the cross dressing stuff, and obviously the the womanizing of the male yeah. characters. Who, by the way, if you don't know the story beginning of the story i think i presume it's in chicago there's a shootout and they they witness a shootout and some murders uh in a gang a gang after skip town they're musicians they managed to get on the only gig going is on an all-female music troupe exactly exactly so obviously for the concept of this they've got to dress up as women but um tony curtis was talking about the whole pout he's got he's got quite an interesting mouth and when he pouts it's quite distinctive and then you've got jack lemon who was kind of inhabiting more the actual the dress yeah the body movement sort of stuff. And it's interesting how they both... They're both brilliant. Those. I mean, I know that Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau had quite a long, yeah. successful... I mean, they yeah. did about a dozen films together or whatever. But, yeah, it's a shame we didn't get any more films between him and Tony Curtis. That yeah, would have been brilliant. glorious. Brilliant. The two of them bouncing off each other. I mean, if that film was made by now, they would have been 
there would be sequels greenlit almost immediately. You, yeah, you, yeah. you just know it, you know. This, this film is absolutely brilliant. Um, we talked about end, end scenes, Norma Desmond's I'm Ready for My Close-Up. Um, th- this film has got um, the famous line, Nobody's Perfect, yeah. by, um, set by Joey Brown, who's this millionaire, very campish sort of millionaire guy who seems to seems to just um, want to go with this lady. Osgood Fielding the third. Yes, I, yeah. I love the fact that they did a music. I mean, all of the films in our top four um, have all had musical adaptations. In one musical adaptation of this in 1991, I think there's the stage production of this. Then Tony Curtis actually played the. He was in his late 70s by then. Actually played the Osgood Fielding the third character. Oh, did he? Did he really? Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, Osgood is is this? Yeah, you know, he's a sort of like a a marine base kind of yacht owning. Yeah millionaire or billionaire whatever he is and he, and he he falls in love supposedly with jack lemon's female persona and um you know there's there, this, this film very famously as tony curtis's character fancies um marilyn monroe a lot and yeah. well they both fancy her but he's particularly keen yeah um, he's he's dressed up as this kind of cary grantish type of character he um, does the cary grant voice he does the impersonation famously yeah but yeah he's totally just, uh, like it's brilliant grant. he does it, it's fantastic yeah i can't believe billy wilder never worked with cary grant no and and this is the thing that was that was tony curtis's idea and Billy Wilder hadn't factored that in. Tony Curtis came up with this. He goes, yeah. right, I've got, I'll, I'll just do a voice. And he just he just um, channeled his, his inner Cary Grant in general. Yeah. And Billy Wilder seemed to have said, oh, that sounds kind of like a bit of a parody of Cary Grant, but that sounds great. Go with that. So it's one of those rare occasions where yeah. something very different but very significant um, to, to the original script was was allowed to find its way into the product. And yeah. I mean, it's brilliant. It's a great side. That's that's him when he he poses also poses a shell oil uh, in an attempt to kind of yeah, yeah. impress Marilyn Monroe. Just very quickly, while we're on the subject of that, by the way, it was interesting that when I watched Stalag 17 quite recently, they've got a character there who does impersonations of Hollywood actors. Yeah, and yeah. He does amongst the other list. Harry <laughs> Grant, of course, as well, yeah, <laughs> uh, amongst others. But now this film has got it all. It's got so many laughs. There's so it's, many. Yeah, you could make a film like this now, but it's yeah. hilarious. You, you, you just got to, it's a product of its time. And you just go with it. It's great. When you watch, it's funny, and again, watch, it does have its dark parts to it with the gangsters and the murders. They don't shy away yeah. from any of any of that. Yeah, and the gangsters show up later down later down the line, and they've got to keep trying to hide out from them. But I mean, when you when you uh, channel in on things like body swap comedy programs and uh, films, sorry, and you watch Mrs. Doubtfire and you watch stuff like that, um, this whole notion of hiding in a persona, yeah, um, this obviously precurses that by some distance. That is generally that's got so much material, and this I don't think anything has has managed to get the most of the, the, the potential of that scenario as much as this film. I think many years later, no one's matched it. There's so many yeah. amusing scenarios that are created from the cross dressing, from the yeah. fact that you know, for example, Jack Lemon's in the upper bunk on this train, sleeping with all the girls. Obviously, yeah, like, in the, that looked like a good party. I want to be. In yeah, yeah, they're all climbing into the into his bunk, going, "Oh, you're great, you are. We yeah. really like you." They want her as almost like a him slash her, as as almost like a mother figure, don't they? And so, obviously, he's kind of a really close quarters with all these extremely attractive. Yeah, they're all blonde, aren't they? Um, musicians, and he's, he's obviously hiding the fact that he's extremely turned on by the whole thing. Um, 
and it just creates a load of uh, amusements. They're Again, this is uh, like the other films. This is another one that could have been made in color um, four years earlier. Um, yeah, nineteen fifty. Wilder had made the Seven Year Itch with Marilyn Monroe yeah. in color. This time, they weren't sure whether to do it in black or white in color. But once they put um, the two leads in drag and makeup, apparently they looked so hideous. Yeah. They went, "No, we got to do this in black and white." <laughs> They were absolutely crazy. grotesque, apparently. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fancy either of them. Put it that way. I don't think I'd get confused uh, with, with genders myself. If it gets, if it gets them out of trouble with the gangsters, though, then fair play. Yeah, yeah. nineteen fifty nine. Uh, the, the Seven Year Itch, by the way, which I'm going to guess doesn't feature in the top fives. No. It's, it's a, it's a famous <laughs> film for the for I the. I don't really didn't really get on with it. I've got to be honest. I, I, I don't like it. I don't like. I didn't it. really. I didn't really think very much of it. No. Yeah, the guy is it Tom Ewell or whatever his name is. The guy that plays the male lead is very. I mean, he's very forgettable. The fact you're looking at yeah tells me that you thought he was as well. Yeah, I know. I'd the, never seen it before. I watched it and I just thought, meh. Yeah, it's, it's famous <laughs> for, for the for the for the grid, um, the, the street level grid scene blowing her skirt up, which is yeah enormously famous shot um, in the film, and 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 the phrase the seven year itch sort of entered popular lexicon. But apart from that, I didn't take very much from yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I concept, thought it was quite boring, really. It, it was it, almost it, like a stage play. It was all basically set in an apartment where they just talk backwards and forwards. Yeah, forth. it is. I, mean, I don't know if it's based on a stage. And play, you think but... in the real world he'd never have a chance with a girl. Like that. <laughs> I think the concept is um, the family's gone away for the summer, but he's had to stay in the city to work or something, hasn't he? And then, yeah. of course, Marilyn Monroe rocks up and he has an affair with her during the um, the holiday season or something. So this was, yeah, as we said, Billy Wilder's second time working with Marilyn Monroe, and he had they had a lot of problems with her on this film. Um, she uh, lacked concentration and was really suffering from pill addiction. So she was late to set, couldn't remember her lines. Um, Tony Curtis said that it took between 35 and 40 takes for each line. Um, <laughs> Curtis and Lemon used to lay bets on how many takes it would take for her to get it right. Um, her, and she had her acting coach, Paula Strasberg, and her husband at the time, Arthur Miller, on set with her trying to kind of influence production, which drove Wilder absolutely yes. mad. And he basically said, after that, I'm never working with her again. Yes. He didn't actually expect to get her, I think. He was... Um, he, but he, he, she, I think she kind of campaigned for the part. He didn't expect to get a star that big. And once she wanted the part, that means she had to have it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was that bigger yeah. star at the time. Short of that subway grill scene from Seven Year Rich and maybe to a certain extent the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend song from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. This, this is the iconic Marilyn performance. So the fact yeah, that she gets four songs in it as well, doesn't she? And yeah. plays a bit of guitar or plays a bit of ukulele. As she does what I'm through with love and, um, uh, what's the other stuff? There's some really famous songs. Yeah. It's, I know musicals your strong point, Phil. I'm disappointed you don't remember. <laughs> but um, yeah, four four famous songs. Um, it's it's great. It's got gangsters at the beginning. It's got comedy. It's got romps. It's got a road movie. Danger, it's got yeah, yeah. It's um, uh, Tony Tony Curtis can be quite hammy in a lot of things, but he's just perfect in this. I think he's yeah. hammy in most things, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, is, um, yeah. But I mean, he was immediately cast for Joe. Um, for for the role of Jerry, um, they Frank Sinatra didn't turn up to the audition. Jen, Jerry Lewis and Danny Kaye were considered, and then Wilder saw Lemon in a film Danny called Operation Mad. 
not Danny Kaye. Madball and thought, oh, he looks all right. We'll try him. And yeah, you know, it was the first time they worked together, and it was the beginning of a, a particularly long and fruitful relationship. I think Danny Kaye is one of those guys who I think I'm going to struggle to ever find a film I like that he's in. He did things like the original Secret Life of Mitty, and I had to turn it off. I thought it was yeah. awful. I preferred the Ben Stiller <laughs> version. I thought that's not going to be good news, is it? <laughs> um, I know he's, he's liked by some people, but not by me. Sorry. Um, and I mean, the amount I know you love this is your little niche market, isn't it? Talking about who could have been in the roles. And I love, I love it. I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah. and I, I never bother to read up on it. So when you tell me, I'm constantly fascinated yeah some of the people that could have been in the roles for certain films sometimes you look at who missed out and you think they could have been perfect and they must be so yeah. gutted they missed it other times like we mentioned charlton heston and here we're talking about danny Kay. i think no i can't imagine uh, it yeah marlon brando as well we talked about when we earlier it's just not right for the roles you know well, then other times you, you think they cast the perfect person and they just don't do what you somehow. like Christoph Waltz's Blofeld that we spoke about in yeah, in our it, Bond episode yeah in paper that's a match made in heaven but I never quite got it you know yeah yeah incidentally speaking of um speaking of which I thought um Ernst Goldfinger's um the who, name remind me of the name of the actor I've forgotten his name uh I can't remember now which one Goldfinger uh oh yeah Gert Frode that's him, yeah, yeah. I could have sworn he was in Starleg 17. I actually Googled it and checked. No, it's Otto it, Priminger. It's, it's not, <laughs> no, no, it's someone else, another another. Oh, one. okay. It's someone else who looked like him. And I, I, I could have sworn it was him, and I checked. It wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> His name wasn't attached, or at least not, it wasn't credited anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the only other thing to mention for me, critical and commercial success yeah, again. Big box office smash, wasn't it? Whenever you see the top comedy movies ever, this is usually in the top ten. Yeah, yeah. Uh, considered one of the greatest films of all time. Um, I'm not even going to bother mentioning the, uh, the, other, the other stuff that you know was going to happen, um, approved by various people. As yeah, it's on the Library of Congress list. Of top- yes, exactly, yeah. Um, it, one interesting thing, the film was approved, with, was produced, sorry, without approval from the Motion Picture Production Code, Hayes Code, that's tied in yeah. point, um, because it features LGBT-related themes, including cross-dressing. The code had been gradually weakening in its scope since the early 1950s, due to greater social tolerance for taboo topics in film, but was enforced until the mid-1960s. So this is, this is 1959. Yeah, as I said, this was a sort of death knell of it, yeah. Transitional stage, wasn't it, yeah. The overwhelming success made it considered one of the reasons behind the replacement of the Hayes Code. So interesting stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, superb Brilliant film. film. And we should mention as well, George Raft as Spatz Colombo, who's the model yeah. from Chicago. George Raft, or Raft, is um, he's one of the synonymous early gangsters. He, he uh, We mentioned Edward G. Robinson playing gangster roles. George Raft is is basically the Al Pacino of the earlier era. Or okay. The, or the um, Marlon Brando. If you like. I haven't watched enough of that. At some point, we'll have to do... Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. depression era gangster films or something. He's also he's also um passed up on a number of really famous roles, including um Casablanca. Oh, okay. I mean, seriously big roles. He's yeah. Um I think I can't remember what else it was. There was something else along those lines. But um also I've noted um Pat O'Brien, who's um Anglo, oh, sorry, he's an Irish American. Um, he plays Agent Mulligan in Some Like It Hot, a small role. Yeah. Um, but he's um, he's very often playing 
an Irish American priest who's got a quandary with dealing with children who have fallen into criminal times. Uh, he's played that role several times in film. Oh, okay. He's quite an interesting character. Joey Brown, we mentioned, and um, I think there was someone else to mention as well. Can't remember who it was now. Um, oh, yeah, that was the other one. Edward G. Robinson Jr. is in it. Oh, okay. As Johnny Paradise. <laughs> I don't know who that is. It's obviously. Um, That's a proper gangster's Jr. name, isn't it? Yeah. He's a gangster who. Oh, he's the gangster who kills Spats Colombo. Yeah. So, so he kills a George Raff character. Yeah. So there we go. That's just from the trivia side of things. So that's yeah. my number one, and it's your number no hang two. On. Your number two. Yeah. So we just need. So we just need your number one, don't we, Phil? Well, it's the apartment, isn't it? So you've gone for it, number one. I'm, I'm really intrigued. I loved it. One. I absolutely oh. loved it. I, 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 I love. I, as I said, those top four were fantastic. And of the four of them, that was the one I think that was the one that I think it had the right mix of black comedy, genuine hilarity, poignancy, yeah, everything. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So number one for me. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. You had it all the way out at number four, but oh, it could have been. It could have been nobody's perfect. <laughs> it could have been any old order. I mean. I, I, there's not much more we could say. We've obviously covered it a lot already. Yeah. Um, just having a look through if there was anything else. I mean, immediately following the success of Some Like It Hot, it says here, Wilder and Diamond wished to make another film with Lemon. Wilder had originally planned to cast Paul Douglas as Sheldrake. However, after he died unexpectedly, McMurray was cast in that role. Yeah. Um, it also says the initial concept came from Brief Encounter by Noel. I'd Campbell. said that earlier. Yeah. Oh, you did. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Uh, with Laurie, yeah, blah blah blah. Yeah, and, um, yeah I mean, music's great. Um, it's yeah, it's a brilliant film. I, I love. Film. I have to say, I haven't seen it recently. I wonder if that it's makes it's, a, it's it's two hours long. It's it's yeah. it's a wonderful film. It just drew me in, and I was just you know thoroughly entertained throughout. Yeah, Shirley MacLaine. I also just to say about her. Yeah, she's, she's great. I mentioned Jack Lemmon, obviously he's brilliant. And it's not a particularly, sh- it's not a, like a femme fatale or a particularly showy role. It, her part, but her role goes to some dark places, you know. This is this is interesting. Yeah, I mean, Shirley MacLaine, we mentioned Jack Lemmon, obviously some like it hot as well as The Apartment, I think are his two greatest roles. Um, Shirley MacLaine in this, she's got three or four brilliant roles in, in her film career and a number of other very good roles. Um, but I think this is one of her brilliant roles because, as you said, it goes to dark places. She did a film called um, The Children's Hour with Audrey Hepburn, which is about lesbianism, and it's a very touchy subject. Okay. And it's about small-town America and how they're... I think they're school teachers or something like that. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen I've it. I've never heard it. Oh, The Children's Hour, yeah, great This film. is not, not my era, sorry. The, the, the male lead in that is James Garner, uh, a Rockford oh, okay. Forest fan. Yeah. He was very good in it. He's a, he's a good film actor, by the way, James yeah. Garner. Anyway, um, Shirley McLean in that is utterly brilliant. I think she might have got Oscar nominated for that. I'm not sure. Um, in this film, again, there's a very soulful, downbeat, melancholy, and as you said, dark yeah. her character i think she's the most interesting character in this film you know there's, there's something just kind of you can't call it wistful because it's too dark for that but it's got yeah I don't know, she's quite reflective and she's expecting the worst for herself and you know it's not going to pan out and those characters kind of you ble- your heart bleeds for them don't 
don't know. And particularly in films of that time, quite a lot of the female roles were massively underwritten. But okay. that is a that is a proper meaty role that she's got there, and she really does does justice yeah. material. And she's she's scouting To Kill a Mockingbird. She's got this tomboyish persona yeah. in the films. The other the other film, of course, I think Trouble with Harry, she's in, isn't she? With, uh, yeah. Hitchcock. Those, those are probably my favourite four. I think I've missed someone, something else I can't remember at the moment. But, you know, four or five films she's done which have just been exceptionally good. And at her best, she's brilliant. Love Shirley MacLaine. Brilliant. Yeah. And, um, of course, you know, from a Hollywood family and all that. Um, and Jack Lemmon, I absolutely adore. He's yeah. Superb. Um. I need to see it again, actually. Yeah, you I do. do. I'll probably change my order. <laughs> so let's summarise the order, shall we, Phil? So number five, I went ace in the hole. You went static 17, wasn't it? I went for static 17, yeah. Number four, I've got the apartments, and you've got... I went for Sunset Boulevard. Number three, I went Sunset Boulevard. And I went yeah. double indemnity. And number two, I went double indemnity. And I went some like it hot. Number one, I went some like it hot. And I went for the apartment. There we go. Pretty, pretty close. Yeah, not not bad. And the apartment could have featured higher. Yeah, yeah. It's all it's all very close. Yeah, respectfully similar taste, I think. A bit like Hitchcock, a bit like a couple of the other ones we've yeah. done. You know, I could do this again next week and I could shuffle yeah. top, that top four around. Do you want to do that then? No. <laughs> maybe, not, maybe not. What we will do next is we'll mentions. Oh yeah, sorry. Honourable mentions. Yeah, go on, go on. Yeah. So um, we we went, we said sort of double indemnity in 1944. The next year, as I mentioned, only did the Lost Weekend in 1945. Um, Ray Milland is a, a struggling alcoholic writer. It's a pretty or- horrible depiction of alcoholism, particularly for 1945. But it's a it's a gripping film. Very very it's a great good. Film. Really good film. Um, yeah. We we. We've moved through uh, after Static 17 in 1953. We had Sabrina in 1954 with yeah. uh, Humphrey Bogart and Audrey Hepburn yeah. and William Holden. That it's a good fun film. Yeah. I enjoyed well, that. Audrey's also in Love in the Afternoon, another great film. Yeah, 1957. We have Witness for the Prosecution, which is uh, set in England. I think um, that was with uh, Tyrone Power and Marlene, Diet- Marlene Dietrich. This is the Agatha Christie novel, isn't it? It's an Agatha Christie adaptation. Much, much I think Billy Wilder later. said that the, the, the two biggest compliments he was ever paid were by James um, Kane, who wrote The Double Indemnity, and Agatha Christie, who wrote Witness for the Prosecution, who were kind of gushing in their praise of his, his sort of film adaptations. And he said, if the writer's saying that, then, you know, that's that's yeah. the best compliment you could ever get. Um, um, witness for the prosecution just a quick word on that i mean it's a brilliant story i've seen it as a stage play at um oh, where was it it was something like um it's one of the significant kind of um municipal buildings in london uh the royal something something and they had a stage play in there and it was brilliant um, yeah i bet it was yeah there's been an adaptation on tv fairly recently on the bbc which was really good it's one of those stories that's been always really well depicted but i think this is possibly the best version molina dietrich as you said charles lawton as one of yeah. the masters, uh one of the lawyers charles lawton's absolutely electric in that film lawton's brilliant well yeah. I mean, maybe one day we'll talk very about believable yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, he's predominantly an actor he's in jamaica he made night of the hunter as well didn't night he the hunter. i think he made one film and that was it and that's like one of the all-time classic films and that's because of critical 
disparaging, it, it, absolute, absolute crime against film, how badly the critics responded to that film. We'll get on to that one day. It's one of my yeah. favourite films ever. Absolutely brilliant film. Anyway, yes, over, over to so, you. So, yeah, moving on. So after um, The Apartment in 1960, he made the film One, Two, Three in 1961. Berlin set film with James Cagney and Horst Buchholz. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's a little bit steric German stereotyping is a little bit... True out of date but it's still good fun um and then i really enjoyed in 1966 the fortune cookie with um jack lemon feigning injury his first film with walter matow as his dodgy yes. brother-in-law um and uh ron rich is great as the kind of american football player who uh who who, who created his injury and feels really guilty about it i thought that was a wonderful film that came very close to being my number six yeah, i love that film oh, i love those two they're brilliant double acts yeah and they, they later did Buddy Buddy together with Billy Wilder in 1981, which was Billy Wilder's last film as a director. Yeah. yeah. Um, the front page, are you going to mention next? I'm, oh, no, you're, I know what you're going to mention next. Go on. 1970? No, no. no? You, I haven't seen that one. The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Um, I didn't really enjoy that one quite so much. It was all right. It's well rated. Um, I yeah. I thought it was a little yeah. predictable. Yeah, it didn't. A long time ago, I saw it. As well, to be honest, Avanti, which is Avanti's quite fun. I watched that; it's okay. It goes; it, it's longer than it needs to be. Um, but Jack Lemon's great in it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite nice well, seeing Italy of the early seventies. Just looks gorgeous exactly. as well. I, I quite enjoyed Avanti actually. I, I quite yeah. enjoyed it. the front page, nineteen seventy four. Now, it's American black comedy drama. Of course, this is the, the one we've mentioned before when we're doing screwball comedies. His Girl Friday. This is the remake. Yeah. Of well, there was there was a front page before. Then there was his girl Friday. Then there was this remake of the the other two. Uh, pretty decent actually. Lemon and Matau again. Um, screenplay by Wilder and Diamond again. Uh, based on Ben Hex and Charles MacArthur's nineteen twenty eight play, which is the original source material, uh, and as it says, inspired other films and televised movies and series episodes. Apparently, that's interesting. I didn't know about oh, okay. series. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great little film. It's, it's not bad. I haven't seen that. I'll have to, I'll have to yeah. get around. Again, a long time since I've seen it, but I think entertaining, but I just loved His Girl Friday so much. Yeah. To, I, to, I realised that when we did our screwballs. Yeah. yeah. To explain the fact that I ended up with, I've got a copy of it on DVD and on Blu-ray due to duplication reasons, and they've got different, <laughs> a couple of different features on there, um, small amount of detail of difference, but that alone has justified me keeping both copies rather than there giving it charity because I just love it so much. I want to see every bit about that film. Great film. Um, yes, Phil, anything else on the... No, I think that's pretty much it for my list. Oh, on the writing side, I was having a look through... I mean, he's obviously written a load of the stuff that he made. Um, he's he's written a load of stuff that he didn't direct, though. I'm just looking through. I think Emil and the Detectives, 1931, I think, had quite a bit of kudos. Um, that was a German film, was it? Yeah, one of his early ones. I think that's one of one of the more famous of his early films. Ninochka, 1939, is a very famous film. That's, um, yeah. I believe, it's Greta Garbo, uh, one of her famous roles. In Barry Norman's Top 100, if I recall correctly, um, it's a good film, actually, really good film. Yeah. It's kind of like a social drama kind of... It's a thing. bit of screwball comedy as well. 
bit of screwball, yeah, yeah. Um, and Ball of Fire, of course, we've Ball of Fire's great, yeah. We've already, gone, we've already gone to town on that one. Amazon yeah. Prime, everybody, Amazon Prime on that one. <laughs> Still available for free. Annoyingly, a load of Billy Wilder stuff is on Amazon Prime, but you've got to pay about £3.50 or £4.50 to watch it. <sighs> Can't agree with that. So in case you're wondering if we're publicising that particular streaming service, down with Amazon Prime for <laughs> <laughs> ripping you off over old films. Uh, there we go. Old, old, but not forgotten and much loved. Oldie, but goldie. Definitely. Oldie, but goldie. And on that very subject, oldies, not that old, though. We're going to go on to our next subject, aren't we? we we're going to do yeah. the Golden Seagulls at some point, which will be either side of the next feature episode. Um, so look out for that whenever that happens. But the next feature episode, should that be the next thing, will be on the subject of film. The heist movie. Yes. Yeah. So we're talking all sorts here, aren't we? Bank robberies. We're talking about people cutting off ears in warehouses. We're talking about minis talking going about Mike Italy. We're talking about Robert De Niro and Al Pacino sitting opposite each other having a coffee. <laughs> having a coffee. Is this to do with the film or just having a chat? No, it's the heat, isn't it? That, that scene in Heat where you've just got the I two of them. Yeah, it's like, that's brilliant. <laughs> All of that to come. So heist movies. Now, this one's going to inspire quite a bit of response, I think, from listeners and viewers or whatever else. So if you are... You can't watch podcasts, so you don't get viewers. Not viewers, no, that's true. Not unless you're <laughs> streaming. Viewers of our Twitter podcasts. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, well, whatever. Anyway, our listeners, um, thank you for all for listening. We hope you will continue to do yeah. so. If you can rate us and you're on Apple, then go for it. Please do. Please, 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 yeah. Five stars. Pushes us up to the charts. Yeah, five stars. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Um, if you can write reviews as well, fantastic. If you can Even recommend better. it, thank friends. you. Follow us on Twitter. We've got, I think it's at Film Fives. I can't remember what it is now. At Film Fives. Anyway, if you search that, search for it. Yeah, and on Facebook, we're on Facebook as well. Yellow and black iconography, artwork, sort of stuff as well. We're on Facebook, as you said. Um, let us know what your top five heist films are. They can be from any era. You've got some classic Hollywood stuff. You've got um, the Asphalt Jungle, the Killers, or is Dog it the Day Killers? Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon from a later stage, Reservoir Dogs, The Italian Job, Ocean's Eleven. There's loads and loads of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's just film stuff, though, so don't chuck in Money Heist. That's the TV stuff, TV story, that one. But um, I, I still need to watch that, by the way. It's great. Anyway. I like. Well, it, it got a bit ridiculous towards the end, but the first couple of series are great. <laughs> Excellent. So Heist Films, let us know what your top five are. We will let you know what our top five are on the next feature episode, which will be coming up in a short few weeks' time. But Phil, I think that pretty much um, sums it up, doesn't it? Any further- oh, Thank you very much. I really enjoyed uh, yeah, Mr Wilder and his oeuvre. Um, time to start watching uh, a few Heist Films. Absolutely. So until next time, we're going to say cut.